Okay, good morning everybody and welcome to the 52nd meeting of the Economy Committee. Um, some members will attend this morning's meeting via video conference and our witnesses this morning will brief via video conference. The meeting will be broadcast live when it's open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. So just to remind members to mute their uh, tablet devices when they're not talking. Um, so moving on then to item number one. Um, apologies, I don't think we have no, any. No, we have no apologies, Chair. Okay. Um, so item number two then, there is draft minutes at page five of your pack from the meeting on the 17th. Um, are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Yep, I'm getting nods, Chair. That's, that's fine. Thank and you. And then moving on, there is a copy of the draft record of decisions of the meeting held on the 17th for the decisions that we took via correspondence at page nine of our packs. Are members content that those are an accurate record of the decisions? I'm getting nods, Chair. Yep, okay. thank you. Um, so moving on then to item number three, which is Chair's business. Just a couple of items in here. Um, at page 14 of your pack, there is correspondence from the Speaker, Alex Maskey, MLA, highlighting to members that a petition regarding COVID support payments for students was laid in the Assembly on the 8th of February by Sinead McLaughlin. This has been forwarded to the Minister and shared with the Committee for information. So that is to note. Members content? Thank you. So moving on then, there's correspondence from the Clerk to the Public Accounts Committee. The final stage of an inquiry um, is almost up. The PAC opens the issue up to other committees um, to develop a programme of work based on the findings of the C and AG and of the committee. The clerk has asked for an indication of any reports the committee for the economy might wish to take up when the PAC has completed its inquiry so we can be updated with the likely publication um, date. So there's only one economy issue that the, has been flagged up in the PAC's current work programme, which is investment in broadband. Um, and this has been marked as being for future inquiry, probably in April or May. So are members content that the clerk would respond and indicate that the committee will consider it, whether it wishes to pursue actions from that inquiry once it's com completed? Yep, I'm getting nods, Chair. Thank you. Okay. So moving on then, there, um, there is a clerk's memo and associated documents regarding our informal meeting last Thursday morning with Queen's Staff and Student Strategy Working Group. Um, the meeting took place um, on Thursday the 18th and it was regarding their, the group's paper Building Back Better and Alternative Future for Higher Education in Northern Ireland. Um, so there are some suggestions set out in the clerk's memo which include corresponding with the university to ensure that it is engaging with the group, to commission research on the funding models um, for universities and to engage with Preston Council and University of Central Lancashire around the Preston model. And members might be familiar with that from our briefing on community wealth building. Um, and it was highlighted to us in the meeting last week that there is very strong um, relationships between the university and the council there. Chair, I'm thinking it might be useful because it covers a number of the areas we've looked at to get a briefing from relevant uh, officials from the council and university. I think it would be really useful. Yep. I'm getting I'm getting nods for that. So, yep, go ahead. <coughs> Does anybody that was at the meeting want to add any additional points? John and Sinead were both there. It was a very useful discussion. 
Yes, Chair, it was very informative, very refreshing uh, view on the role of universities in our society, the, the purpose of higher education, etc. Um, a very enlightening presentation. Okay, thank you, John. Um, so moving on then, we have one final item of Chair's business, which isn't in your packs. Um, the committee had engaged in correspondence with an individual regarding the high price of LPG compared to neighbouring jurisdictions. The committee has also written to the Consumer Council regarding this issue, as well as the Competition and Markets Authority. The Competition and Markets Authority has made suggestions for the forthcoming energy strategy on the issue. LPG does not fall under the utility regulator here. However, the new regulator, um, John French, is familiar with this issue from his day in the Consumer Council where he has moved from. Um, Peter, have you yeah, Chair, up on this? What, what we're suggesting is that the committee um, writes to John French as the new regulator, new utility mm -hmm. regulator, to see what he can do around potentially looking at LPG falling within his remit and being regulated. The information we have shows a huge price differential uh, between what people pay here and what people pay, for example, in Scotland. Um, so th th there's clearly an issue, and it it's one that the Consumer Council previously looked at. So John is very aware of it. So if members are content, we will, we will write to John and see just what can be done in terms of extending his remit. It may require legislation. Um, but I think it's worth pursuing. Yep. So I remember Chair, could I just, um, say, yeah, I endorse what, what, my, what has been said there by Peter. It's an issue that is brought to our attention. There is a bit of disparity in the, the cost of LPG against mains gas or Phoenix or whatever, whoever the supplier is. So well done, Peter. It's an issue that has been rattling around for some time. And um, it's good now that John French has taken up that post. He originally was highlighting the issue. He's poacher turned gamekeeper, so let's hope he will deliver on it. So thanks for that, and we appreciate the efforts that's been put into it. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gordon. Perfect. We have members content then. So moving on then to item number four, which is our briefing um, on the 14 to 19 strategy from both the Department for the Economy and the Department for Education. There is a clerk's memo at page 109 of your packs and a briefing paper at page 112. So this was a joint meeting that we had originally hoped to do with the Education Committee. Um, we had organised it about a year ago, just before COVID um, actually hit. So the, this was postponed. At that point, um, the Education Committee has indicated that pressures on their schedule mean they are not able to participate today. So the briefing will be hand-sorted and, and we will share the briefing then with the Education Committee. So I'd like to welcome into the meeting um, Heather Cousins, who's Head of Skills and Education Group in DFE, Jamie Warnock, who's Assistant Director, Skills and Education in DFE, Carm McCulloch, who is Director of Curriculum Qualifications and Standards Directorate in DE, Claire McClelland, who is Project Manager, Transition of Young People into Careers, 14 to 19 Project, DE, and Joan Cassells, Whose qualifications team in DE. So if I hand over to yourselves, I'm not sure which of you is going to open Chair, up. I think we just need to bring another um, into the spotlight there. Yeah, we've, we've done that. It's just it wasn't a name on it. Okay. Well, I'll hand over to yourselves and um, if, to make an opening statement and then we'll bring uh, members in for some questions. Good morning, Chair, and thank you very much for the opportunity to brief the committee on the ongoing joint work to develop a more strategic approach to 14 to 19 education and training. Um, to, to set this in context, in 
2017, the then Ministers for Education and the Economy agreed that officials from their respective departments would work together to develop a more strategic approach to 14 to 19 education and training provision. The ministers set out a number of areas which they wished officials to focus on in order to address the challenges in the 14 to 19 education and training landscape. In order to build consensus around the main challenges and what achieved, uh, two departments commenced initial engagement with key stakeholders in early August 2018 by hosting a public sector innovation lab event. This event brought together around 50 stakeholders including educationalists and employers, as well as speakers from other institutions. The outworkings of the Innovation Lab resulted in 21 recommendations groups under the following four themes, policy strategy, progression, collaboration, measurement and impact. The transition of young people into careers project or the 14 to 19 project was established in January 2018. It is jointly led and funded by DE and DFE. A project board has been established to oversee the project, and this is jointly chaired by myself, Fiona Pepper, who's the Deputy Secretary for Responsibility for Education and Children's Services in DE. At the outset, I should highlight that this is a particularly complex area of work, which spans across a number of departments and sectors. The joint approach that we're taking provides an opportunity to grasp some of these complex issues and ensure that we collectively meet the needs of our young people and the economy. Initially, the project focus was on putting in place work plans and priorities, building on the innovation lab work and engagement process with stakeholders. A critical element of the project's work to date has been to agree a draft vision and a set of guiding principles. These have been developed and agreed in collaboration with both departments and cross-sectoral stakeholders. Both are outlined in the paper which you received in advance of today's briefing. Recognising the complexity of the 14 to 19 landscape, the project has identified a number of work streams based on the original ministerial correspondence, the recommendations identified through the Innovation Lab of 2018, and issues that have arisen through the project's stakeholders. So the work streams include funding, progression and pathways, curriculum delivery, post-16 and careers. And under these work streams, the project is considering a wide range of issues. We know that the range of pathways open to young people at the end of Key Stage 4 and post-16 is extremely complex. However, there is a need to ensure that pupils and their parents understand the full range of options in order to make choices. We also need to understand how the 14 to 19 education and training landscape is funded, the use and allocation of funding across the system, and any intended or unintended consequences funding has on competition, duplication, collaboration. And we need to consider and agree what the role and purpose of education at post-16 is. Finally, on the work streams, high quality careers, education and guidance is crucial, ensuring that learners are aware of their options and the available pathways into higher education, further education, training and employment. Careers, education and advice has been consistently highlighted by a range of stakeholders as being a critical element in the education and training journey for 14 to 19 roads. 
So moving to the current position and the project's outputs. Whilst the project is important, it is discretionary and non-statutory. And in March 2020, then, as a result of pressures faced by both DFE and DE responding to COVID, both ministers took the decision to suspend work on the project. Therefore, staff deployed on the project were redirected to support business critical work in both departments. In October 2020, both ministers agreed that the work 14 to 19 strategy should recommence. And following some preparatory work throughout October, project resumed on the, from the 2nd of November 2020. Prior to suspension, the focus had been on the completion of the baseline position and an evidence base to support each of the identified work streams. Purpose of this baseline document is to outline the current 14 to 19 education and training landscape and provide details of key challenges. This will form the basis of the future approach. The key challenges have now been captured through extensive research and engagement with stakeholders, and this work is, is now almost complete. So the immediate next step for the project is to finalise that baseline position, and then I can advise that this briefing document is currently being reviewed by project board members and the relevant policy teams across DE, DFE, DERA and DFC. On completion of the baseline in the next few weeks, we will then engage with DE and DFE ministers to agree the next steps. While the suspension of the project clearly had an impact on the timescales, this area of work continues to be a priority for both the Department of the Economy and the Department of Education. In order to make progress, both departments are committed to continuing this collaborative work to ensure that the challenges set out by Mr. are addressed. So that's really all I would like to say in opening remarks. I'm very happy now to answer any questions that members may have. Um, Heather, thank you very much for the update. Um, this was a, a strategy the committee has been very interested in since we were re-established last year um, as part, I suppose, of the wider the, the skills strategy and, and where it links in with, with other strategies. And I think that the current review on level three, four and five um, qualifications as well, I think they, they all are really important. Um, and as you, you highlighted there, I suppose, um, you know, the, the landscape has maybe changed a bit from last year when this work was initially um, ongoing because of COVID and the, the, um, the need to have skills programmes and to have pathways for young people is going to be really important in terms of the, the economic recovery as well. Um, I guess it's also important to say that uh, I'm sure most members, if not all members, will recognise the, the extreme complexity of this um, piece of work and... Um, I know it's something that is highlighted um, to us by by various people is you know the the level of duplication and things like that within the the further education and and school system and and how we grasp all of that to ensure better delivery for for young people. Um, I so you have outlined the the where we currently are and the the next steps. Do you have a, a time frame around? that piece of work in terms of signing that off and then what will be the, the next step after that? Um, yes, I indicated that the, the baseline document um, has been sort of sent out to all project board members for final quality assurance and review. It's quite a substantial document. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there is a lot in it and that reflects the complexity of, of this piece of work. 
So we will work our way through that as soon as we can, and then put papers to the ministers to get their agreement on what the next steps are. We also have to recognise that we are, you know, reaching the, the end of the current mandate. So we'll be setting out, you know, opportunities, quick wins, things that we can take forward in that period of time, but also recognising that this is something that, you know, potentially requires radical change. Um, and we need to look at how we can do this in the most sensible way. It also will need to fit in with the work of the independent panel that's going to be reviewing education provision. Northern Ireland. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. And so just I suppose in relation to um, some of the, the themes that you have mentioned um, through the, your, your briefing, obviously uh, parity is, it was one of those and the, the parity between vocational and academic um, training is something that I think is really important. Um, in terms of putting a focus on, on widening participation, um, particularly for underrepresented and disadvantaged groups, is that something that is being, um, I suppose, prioritised within the, any, um, any proposals? And are there proposals coming out of the, the baseline document? Or when you say key challenges, is it highlighting the challenges or will there be recommendations coming out of that as well? Well, there will be recommendations based on, you know, all the work that has gone into that baseline document. Um, you know, so for example, if we're looking at the progression and parity, um, the, the intention would be to map out what qualifications are and show the parity between vocational and academic to, to make that clearer for learners and parents, um, you know, that, that the two pathways are just distinct, what they, they are in parity. And that you can progress, um, depend, you know, whatever pathway you choose, there will be those opportunities. So that will that will be part of it, and there will be projects that can be taken forward. You know, certainly the Department for the Economy, we are doing pieces of work on trying to streamline and simplify vocational education qualifications because that landscape is very crowded. And likewise, DE will be looking at curriculum and what, what qualifications appropriate there and it is about mapping that and showing that it, it does fit together so that will be one that will be one of the areas of risk. okay thank you uh, Heather and it was just a final question for myself before I bring in um, other members um, I, I guess as part of the response to COVID, we've seen the um, the apprenticeship recovery and retention strategy um, and that work obviously links in with, with this work as well. Is, is the department looking at, I suppose, best practice elsewhere where we, you know, there are really effective models of, um, and even in the South, there, there has been a lot of progress in terms of, of um, skills and um, looking at higher level apprenticeships. Is that something that is being considered by the department? as to how to, I suppose you've called it some quick wins, I think, in terms of being able to deliver things before the end of this mandate. Uh, yes, we, we always look to best practice elsewhere, uh, and we also, you know, we'll, we'll look at some of the OECD work uh, for the skills strategy to, to identify where we can try and find um, comparable systems and so on. Um, it's very difficult to identify something that you could say is going to be totally um, relevant for Northern Ireland, but we are picking up the best practice elsewhere and trying to include that um, in, in the baseline document where we can. 
Okay, thanks, Heather. Um, can I, I possibly ask um, Claire, the project manager, to maybe say a bit more on that? If Claire's there. Yes, certainly. Um, in terms of um, the baseline, what we have tried to do is, as well as capturing the key challenges, we've tried to um, provide evidence to support those challenges. Um, and in taking that forward, it's really important um, for us that we reflect the best practice elsewhere. So not only building on the work of the OECD that was taken forward in um, terms of the skills strategy, but look, looking wider than that and making sure that um, you know when ministers come to make decisions on these really important issues, that, that they have um, recommendations which are based on evidence and identify um, where we can make improvements and learn lessons from um, from elsewhere as well. Thanks, Claire. Um, can we bring John Stewart into the spotlight, please? Thanks, Chair. You got me okay? Yep. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, um, Heather, everyone, for the presentation and the information so far. And as the Chair says, we look forward to seeing it and appreciate your engagement with us. Um, just, a couple, just a couple of points from me. Um, just to get a flavour for, um, in terms of the engagement with stakeholders that you've been doing throughout this, I'm just keen to get a flavour for um, the issues that are being raised, particularly by young people. And if you're seeing key themes that maybe there is maybe coming together on the issues that affect them the most, and maybe could you just elaborate on that? Okay, again, I'll blink. Okay, so just, um, just in terms of the stakeholder engagement, um, this stakeholder engagement has been absolutely fundamental in developing this baseline. So not only um, have we engaged with young people, we've made sure that we've engaged with parents, we've engaged with schools, um, colleges and employers as well. But specifically in terms of the young people, um, the challenges that they are coming up with um, vary. But I think the most important thing to highlight is it isn't all bad. The, there are lots of young people out there who have had really, really positive experiences and are on path, finding pathways that are really meeting their needs and they are um, progressing through the education and training system and um, you know, getting really good outcomes. But there are some young people and I suppose um, one of the main areas in which the young people in the feedback raise concerns would have been around careers and actually um, understanding those pathways. So the system is really complex. There's lots of different ways you can go. There's lots of different qualifications, but it's making sure young people um, get that advice and get they can understand what their actual options are. Um, and I think the main thing is because the system is so comp complex, it's really difficult. Um, young people have told us it's really difficult for them to understand and for their parents to understand what options are available to them and um, you know where they get that um, the right information at the right time. So that really was the main thing from young people. Okay. No, thanks for that, Claire. I mean, that is some feedback that I tend to get, um, particularly from young people, quite often is that aspect around careers that maybe, maybe not as bad now as it used to be, but there's quite often an assumed pathway depending on which schools people go to and where they're going to go on, whether you go into vocational studies or, or the university is automatically mapped out for you, even if that's not necessarily the right course. It's just assumed that you'll go there. So maybe it's just trying to break down those assumed um, progresses and actually look to cater each of them to individuals. 
Um, one aspect that, um, given what the chair said about the impacts of COVID and the change in dynamic in the economy here, and an issue that came out of the APG that uh, I was at last week on micro and small businesses about trying to teach entrepreneurship to young people. Now, we have an amazing organization here that work with a lot of schools called Young Enterprise. You'll all be aware of it. But Young Enterprise only operate in schools where they're asked to come into. So it's an optional thing and it's, it's not compulsory. It's not curriculum based. Yet it's no, um, it's no coincidence that many of our best entrepreneurs in Northern Ireland have been through that scheme. And I can name dozens. And I would love to see if something like that could be factored in to try and sow the seeds of an entrepreneurship and develop those seeds at an early age as part of a um, compulsory curriculum to try and develop that because companies around the world that are leading in entrepreneurship do do that. And we have sort of dipped our toe in the water in Northern Ireland, but I don't think we've fully explored it properly. So if that was something that could be looked at, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because we are an economy that is overwhelmingly based on micro and small businesses. And young people quite often, um, I just don't think, see the opportunities to do it and maybe miss the opportunities at an early age. So again, keen to get your thoughts and maybe that could be something to factor in. I'd really appreciate it. Absolutely, that is something that we can factor in and I maybe ask Karen um, in just a second to add a wee bit more in terms of the Northern Ireland curriculum. Um, but entrepreneurship, all those um, skills are embedded in the Northern Ireland curriculum. And I suppose in terms of, um, because the project is working with both departments, in fact, the Department of Education, um, the Department of Education and the Minister of Data is very aware of the value of organisations such as Young Enterprise and um, there's quite significant funding is provided to that. So, so certainly it's a really important issue and I don't know Karen if you want to add anything in terms of the wider curriculum. Yes, in terms of the curriculum there, thank you. Yeah, so what, in terms of our curriculum objective, it's really about developing young people as an individual, as a contributor to society and as a contributor to the economy and environment. And I think that reflecting that, you know, each stage of our um, curriculum infuses those cross-curricular skills. We have the skills around communication using maths and using ICT, but we also have in there thinking skills and personal um, capabilities. And at key stage three and four, that is around those skills that will support that entrepreneurship. So managing information, being creative, thinking, problem solving, decision making, self-management, and working with others. And that's applied across all the areas of learning in our um, curriculum. But I do take the point, and I think engagement with employers is a really important part of and, and valued by schools as well. You know, those employers as well play a key role in motivating and inspiring young people to, you know, to see yeah. what the skills they require and to see what the world of work is like. So we do, honestly, say young enterprise and um, and I think another organisation as well to support those kind of placements. But we do welcome and schools welcome where there is employer engagement. No, I appreciate that feedback and that it's on the agenda now. And um, again, thanks for your answers and for keeping us updated today. Thanks, Chair. Uh, thanks, um, John. Can we bring in Sinead, please? Good morning, good morning everybody and thank you uh, Heather for your presentation um, and I just would like to say from the outset um, out of all of the strategies and all of the programmes that, that we work with and deal with I think that this is really fundamental for us cracking um, our economy in a proper way. If we get this right then the rest flows 
uh, much easier. So I really, really welcome the collaborative work uh, around um, the Department for Education and the, and the Department for Economy. I mean, it's fundamental and so important, and it's a piece of our economy infrastructure really that hasn't been working quite as effectively as, as it should. Uh, so I really welcome this piece of work and I know it is very complex uh, and, and I can see that from, from the baseline study that, that Heather um, held up there now. There, there's quite a bit um, of work that has been done and quite a bit to do. And I think uh, it's long overdue and I'm glad to see the collaboration um, taking place. So um, there are many challenges, no doubt. Uh, and as, as Claire indicated earlier, there, there's also some room for, for uh, good news. Uh, not everything is broken. There's some very good best practices that we can see. Um, but I think that we just have to, to make sure that there's a, a more seamless pathway that is identifiable for young people. Um, and not everything fits in, in, in the little boxes sometimes that we, we, we try to create. And, and I would really ask to Heather, you know, there are challenges in and around this. This will not be fixed overnight, but there's also cost implications as well. Um, any, any consideration been given to, to the cost of actually developing some of these programs uh, and ensuring that there is um, among it. And, and one of the areas that I'm particularly concerned about is the higher education piece um, after the 14 um, to 19, and bringing that right up uh, through HE as well. You know, there, there are areas there that needs considerable investment and considerable changes. Uh, and and uh, back to John, I'm giving you two questions here, but back to John Stewart's um, observations regarding the career advice and career guidance. That is fundamental at a very, very early age. And I think sometimes we actually start that nearly too late. People are actually considering their career guidance, you know, at the very point and when they have to make make choices and I think that should start really, really much, much sooner for our young people so that they know that there are other pathways other than universities. But there has to be a clear uh, quality career guidance and it's not just dependent on the school um, that you go to. Uh, where, where the choices are open and available to you. So th those are just a few. I would like to hear your observations and some of your thoughts around the challenges uh, and some of the opportunities that lie ahead as well. Yes, Sinead, thank you for that. I, I mean, I agree with absolutely everything you said. But, you know, both the, the education budgets are struggling, you know, and there's a, there's a lot more we can do, but I think there's a lot more we can but, you know, so the, the issue of duplication and so on needs to be looked at. The issue of, you know, some schools say they can't get as well with their new early, sorry, area learning um, partnership because of the difficulty of funding to send people to Those are the sort of things we need to look at and use resources more efficiently. But there is no doubt that, you know, as part of that condition, we will be looking of what some of these would cost, and then take that investment um, where, where we need additional investment. So it, it is complex. We, on the issue of careers, we know that um, the system is a bit disparate. But one of the interesting observations is that during the pandemic, 
when these career interviews with a careers advisor have been online. Parents have also been able to participate, and therefore, you know, you're getting the information and the learners at the same time. And, and you know, that is that is great to see that, and that would ensure that this is best there about what options there are for people, so that you know the young parents about. So I think you know, there, there's for that to be better in the future using the, the technology that we now use in the pandemic. Yeah. Does that does that answer your, your points? I mean, higher education funding is a whole different area. That, yes. Um, yes, totally agree that there needs to be more investment. You know, where we're seeing that increased um, applications to universities go on. But we also need to consider, is it appropriate for everyone to go to university, given that we've identified that we have skills gaps at level or level five, you know, and university isn't for everyone. So again, it is about more effective use of the resources that we have. And, you know, certainly last year, further education, higher education courses did suffer because more people went to universities and didn't enroll in the excellent level four or five provision that's at further education colleges. And you know, I'm trying to encourage further education colleges and the universities collaborate on that rather than it being competitive. Let's collaborate, let's get people in the appropriate courses for, for their level. Absolutely agree there, Heather. It, it, it's about it's it's really important to get people um to, to do the appropriate courses and rather select university on the place that they're going to rather than that course that they're actually studying. Uh, and that um but uh, you know there's a cost of exporting an entire university worth of people out of Northern Ireland, there's a cost to our economy. So we actually have to look and weigh up that cost too. But certainly, uh, you know, uh, sometimes um, I think that there is blurred lines when it comes to the further education, like what the further education institutes, what is their main priority? Is it vocational training? But a lot of it is spent actually trying to, to bring students up to a standard that they should have got within their school system and then they have left and they have the, the the further education colleges are trying to pull them back again you know there's a failure in the systems so we need to actually fix it before they actually leave school and then possibly go on to to higher educations or further education colleges but i have to say look keep at the work there's lots to be done in it um and where there's lots of best practice throughout europe to look at it uh, to do ways different than, than, than we're currently doing uh, and in many ways our economy suffers as a result of poor choices made earlier and uh, people's lives and we can't we can't allow you know our young people to be failed through through bad choices or bad career paths or, or pathways that are obscure to them in some way. So thank you very much for that. And um, no doubt we'll come back to you again and ask you loads of questions about this as it develops further. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Thanks, Sinead. Um, so can I just pick up, I suppose, on the, the engagement um, point as well? Uh, uh, has there been included in the, the conversations to date and in the work to date um, the, I suppose the organisations that d deal with young people who have, you know, been been failed by the education system or who have been, um, who have faced additional barriers, um, the likes of Include Youth and Start Three Hundred and Sixty, have they been involved in, um, in shaping the the, the baseline document? Uh, 
Claire, perhaps you could answer that. Yes, Chair, not today. Those specific organisations haven't been involved, but what I would say is in the engagement that we have had, our engagement hasn't finished. Um, this by no means. Um, we, we can't just have the baseline document and finish at that. that. We need to continue to engage um, with stakeholders right across. But in, in our engagement with young people, what we did um, was we ensured that we had young people from all backgrounds. We made sure that we had young people who were in school who had possibly went through that academic route. We had engagement with young people in further education. But we'd also made sure that we had young people who maybe didn't have um, a typical experience with the education system or um, they maybe had had other, uh, other challenges to deal with as well. So, so in our engagement to date, we've had, tried to be as inclusive as possible. But certainly going forward, you know, if there's other organisations that we need to engage with, we, we will do that. No, that, that, that's good to hear. Has, has the Children's Commissioner been, um, has she been involved in the, the engagement and consultation process? Um, yes, Chair, the um, Children's Commissioner was briefed early on um, uh, in, in the development of the project. We were um, quite lucky that we um, were actually able to um, attend one of um, the Children's Commissioner's events to engage with children and young people. Um, as well, but we will continue to keep the Children's Commissioner and indeed others um, engaged as, as we go forward. Well, that, that's good to hear. Thanks for that. Can we bring Gordon in, please? Hello. Can you hear me okay, Chair? Yep, we can, Gordon. Great. Thanks, Chair. Uh, Heller, good to, to see you again and uh, your staff. Thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, we did have a bit of a briefing last week uh, about unemployment and unemployment figures. And I understand there are about 10,000 young people currently unemployed uh, in Northern Ireland. So it is a significant issue and it currently needs to be raised. Um, we do welcome the work that has been done. The strategy covers a number of key issues. Um, and. Um, yeah, there's been considerable consultation. I noticed um, you've engaged with business. Maybe you could give us a bit more on what has been done there, how you've engaged with businesses uh, and employers, obviously. Um, you've consulted with business in the community, the CBI, Chamber of Commerce. What about industry, some of the large manufacturers and so on? Are they having a, a real input into this because they have... Uh, well, an ever-changing demand for skills, and we hear about it from our FE colleges, how they um, customise courses, customise training for um, for business and for manufacturing, for example. Are we covering all of those aspects? Thank you for that question, Gordon. I mean, I think certainly as part of the uh, work that we've been putting into developing the new skills strategy, there has been a lot of engagement with industry uh, and with employers. Um, and, you know, we have ideas as to how we can do that going forward. Perhaps, Claire, to talk about specific um, engagement on this particular project with employers and industry. Yeah. Certainly. Um, in terms of engaging with employers, you know, the project we um, recognise that uh, employers are an absolutely key part of this. Um, you know, we we are wanting to get young people ready to transition into careers, 
Um, so what we have done to date, and again, our engagement isn't complete. We engage with business in the community and um, the CBI. And business in the community actually were able to facilitate um, a meeting with representatives of key organisations. So we've met with employer um, representatives, and that has included representatives of um, those you know, manufacturing employers as well. Um, and in doing that, what we, we sought to do was discuss you know, the work of the project and actually get their views on what employers um, see as a priority for 14 to 19 as well. Um, we had some more work to do prior to the suspension of the project, um, and unfortunately due to COVID, that didn't happen. Um, but in the next you know, number of weeks, we may look at how we can take forward further, um, further groups, further focus groups, specifically with, with employers. Good. You know, the important factor is in manufacturing. We understand that manufacturing, 70% of manufacturing is done outside of Belfast. So there's a great spread there. And, you know, a lot of it, I suppose, we, we think of traditional engineering manufacturing, but, you know, things have moved on and a lot of it is IT based and, and, and all of the various sectors. So it's important that we, we try and cover all of those. My, my last point, I suppose, is how do we um, get the message out about the, the broad range of skills that are, are, are needed out there and the, how do we inspire young people to get interested in, in not just in an IT-based um, career that so many of us are all tied into these days, but getting back to, suppose, uh, getting involved in more traditional skills. And how are we ensuring that pe young people are at an early stage are made aware of, of all the various uh, options and choices that are available out there. Yeah, I think um, that remains the, the key challenge for us is getting young people inspired. Um, and we have mentioned careers advice uh, and have mentioned, you know, the sort of the variability of careers advice that young people get. And I think again, I go back to my um, working collaboration. It'd be great to get collaboration between employers and the career service, maybe doing some case studies on, you know, a career uh, either in a more traditional industry or a career in, in high tech and, and maybe do short videos, social media, so that young people, you know, we're, we're communicating with them in the way in which they prefer to be communicated with um, and to show them what, you know, what kind of career they could have and it might be something that to show that there are pathways and, and you can start at different different levels. So I think there is a lot to be done. A lot of it is about out there. A lot of it is about being creative and communicating with young people in a way which they they can relate to this. Um, and it, you know, it's it's I guess it's quite challenging for those of us who are more mature and I'm talking about myself to to think about the best way to communicate with young people. Um, you know, but. We do need to do that, and our careers advisors have a lot of experience in that area. We need them as well. Okay, just a final point then on that. Um, what about doing something more to incentivize employers and business to take on young people for for work work experience or uh, placement? Many employers see it as a bit of a burden. Uh, they don't really want. To take it on the young people on because it, it commits other staff to to supervising it commits other staff to, to giving time but what more can we do to try and incentivize and encourage 
employers and business out there, including the public sector, to to bring in young people and give them a taster of what real work is about and what what options there are out there. And I think it, you know, there's there's no there's no uh, substitute for it. I think than getting young people. And even we have got young people coming to work with us for a week. They, they just really the vast majority of them really warm to it, and they they see things so differently. And it's just that experience of of the workplace, I think, that's lacking for so many young people. I think more should be done to try and encourage both them and the employers and and, and trying to engage with as many others as possible. Yes, I think this was this is one of the you know the key ch challenges that will be highlighted in, in the baseline document is getting that meaningful work experience for young yeah. people at various stages. You know, um, you know, obviously we've had the incentive programs for apprenticeships um, that were rolled out as part of COVID and we hope to continue with that. Um, you know, and there is evidence that employers have taken up the recruit, retain um, pieces of, of incentive payments and those are starting to, to be paid out. I think the extension of COVID has meant it was slower than we imagined it would be. There will be a new traineeship being rolled out um, from September 2021 which will also include meaningful work placements for, for those trainees. But I think during Claire's engagement with um, your young people in school, this was an issue that, that they raised. Claire, do you want to elaborate on that? Yes, um, thank you, Heather. In terms of work experience, young people did tell us that um, there, there were some challenges and maybe differences in depending you know, what school they did or what contact they had in terms of work experience. But what we did also find was that there are really positive examples as well in terms of connections between employers and schools. Um, so the, the will is there and there is a want from employers and a want from schools to work to um, work together. Hopefully um, in capturing what we have done in the baseline, um, it will provide an opportunity to, an opportunity to build on that um, and to maybe work further with employers and schools to identify is there anything else we can do to make that a little easier. Um, clearly, you know, work experience is, is really important. Um, work experience is absolutely fundamental in helping children and young people um, make, make those choices and find those pathways um, you know, that are suitable for them. Um, so certainly it's something that has been reflected and whilst there are positives, um, they're, they're acknowledged there are um, opportunities as well going forward. Okay, great. Thanks, Helen, and all your staff for the answers. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, um, Gordon. So can, can I just ask oh, a wee question around th that um, engagement piece again, just um, in terms of the, the businesses, just to pick up on, on Gordon's point, um, is there engagement with, I suppose, the representatives of small businesses as well in terms of the types of opportunities or, or skills demands that there might be there? And um, also in terms of social enterprise, um, is that something that has been engaged with and trade unions as well. Okay, um, to chair to this point, um, we have engaged with business in the community and CBI. Um, certainly, if there are other groups, you know that we and FSB as well, you know, so we have we have engaged through those bodies. And um, certainly, if there's more we need to do in terms of engagement with employers, um, we will we will do that. Okay, thank you. Um, Chair, I if I could just add to that, there is extensive engagement going on with uh, 
employers um, in terms of the work we're doing on city deals and maybe Emmy could say something about you know, capturing employers' views through that route. Yes, certainly. Thanks, Heather. Um, obviously, very topical to talk about city deals this morning with, with um, the Dairy Stagan deal. Um, heads of Germany being agreed. Uh, and in fact, I was with um, I was with that council yesterday um, in their employability and skills advisory board, um, which reports into the into the overall city deal. Um, and that's just you know that that was that's a great engagement that we do sort of four or five times a year. And it's it's just one, I suppose, of the wider landscape of um, employer engagement that we do across the city data space. So that also and the causeway plans and the fourth thing. Um, obviously, they're all at different stages. Um, I think it's probably worth mentioning as well, just beyond city deals, the the ongoing engagement with employers that we have right across the piece, and you know, inbuilt into our skills ecosystem. So, for instance, with the further education colleges, we have the curriculum hubs, where they're they're based around sectors, whether it be IT or whether it be uh, manufacturing. And and that's something that uh, Gordon mentioned there. You know, the FE colleges are very very good at getting that engagement directly with employers, so that they can tailor provision uh, to exactly what those employers needs in those sectors. Um, likewise, on the apprenticeship side, we have sectoral partnerships that help to develop and make sure that the apprenticeship offerings, and that's higher level apprenticeships as well um, as the traditional ones. So, so I think, yeah. It, it, Absolutely, is worthwhile mentioning the engagement with employers in this um, specific project, but also that it doesn't sit in isolation amongst our, our wider engagement. No, thanks for that, Jamie. I appreciate th that. Um, can we bring Claire in, please? Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to pick up on that point in relation to the career service. Um, I think it is really important that we do find a way to communicate effectively with young people about the careers that they have in front of them and indeed inspire them. You know, I remember when um, I was getting to that point in my life when I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I was really keen to actually progress something in and around art that felt that there were no options that open to me other than just to be an artist, if you like, whereas, you know, opportunities for graphic design, illustrators, you know, all, all those different types of things, which really do play into what the future of Northern Ireland and the skills that will be required. We only need to see that with, with the uh, university's um, uh, illustration and, and games uh, academy that was announced in the last couple of days in relation to Fortnite. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that we, we need to start looking at, you know, what's out there and what uh, big companies want and, you know, the interests of young people so that they can be inspired into a career that they maybe wouldn't have thought of. Um, the, the second point that I, I want to ask about um, was in relation to other schemes of other departments and specifically talking about the Job Start scheme. And I know that is uh, a scheme that is facilitated through the Department for the Communities, but I met with um, an employer uh, recently who said that the Job Start scheme is really important for being able to take young people on, um, providing them with that much needed experience. And you know, is that something that the department would be potentially looking at in, collabor in collaboration with the Department for Communities? Because it is about jobs, but what's really great about this particular scheme, or what could be great about it, is the opportunities to provide them with experience, which is you know, the, the necessary next step after qualifications. Um, 
Yes, Claire, thanks very much for that. I mean, I think for your first um, point on careers, absolutely, we need to get better at making sure careers advice is as up to date as it can be. So there's a continued professional development need for careers advisors, careers teachers that, that we need to look very seriously at. Um, and, and also, you know, there are other web-based tools that maybe other nations have that we also want to, to look at and take investment in. So, you know, that we're, we're very aware of that and wanting to make that better. In terms of then the Job Start scheme, we have you know, quite good engagement with our communities. Uh, we have been talking to them a long, you know, quite a while ago about mm -hmm. that. And I think, unfortunately, the funding for that um, wasn't forthcoming. So we are going to be working together to see what labour market um, we, interventions we can do together, combining our, our efforts and see what we can do. You know, obviously, one of our concerns before about Job Start was, you know, would it take away from the apprenticeship programmes? Would it be a cheaper way for uh, employers to take people on for shorter periods of time? But I think, you know, there, there is a whole suite of things we could do um, and, uh, and ensure that there would be opportunities for everybody to get tasters to then maybe go on into an apprenticeship that worked out for both parties, etc. But yet we are going to engage very closely on, on that. Okay. No, look, thank you, Heather. Um, I'm pleased to hear that you are working closely with the Department for Community Wellness. Um, I'm all for cross-departmental working. Um, I think the outcomes-based approach that we had agreed to a number of years ago is something that we need to provide focus on. And, you know, this isn't just about providing an income for young people, um, even from a welfare perspective, which is, I suppose, why it's Department for Communities. This is about being realistic about getting uh, young people into work so that they don't uh, necessarily need to access that welfare. So, you know, I, I really do think that the Department for Economy, um, you know, needs to to almost try and share that, um, uh, I suppose, approach in, 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 you know, trying to get young people into jobs. Um, and businesses, you know, are really keen for it too. It is disappointing that funding couldn't be found. I would nearly go as far as to say in this climate, we should be trying to prioritise that. And certainly, you know, I, I'm advocating with uh, the Department Department of Finance, communities, and even the economy minister to try and progress this, um, you know, and, and find the money because I do think it's really important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Um, can we bring in John O'Dowd, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you to the team for their answers uh, thus far and the information thus far. It's good to see progress being made on this. Um, I recognise some of the team from my days back in the Department of Education uh, when we were working on it as well, but progress has been made, that, that, that's good. Um, I, I think in terms, I, I was disappointed and I think it undermines what's known as vocational education and vocational courses when the Minister recently announced £500 for full-time students studying higher courses, but not for full-time students for the studying uh, further education courses. So I think that undermines uh, so, some of the work we're trying to do to encourage young people to explore all their career pathways moving forward and to put uh, an equivalence between the, the, the benefits of, of exploring trades, etc. Anybody who's currently trying to get hold of a tradesperson or pay a tradesperson uh, to do work around their homes will know that uh, it's very difficult to do so. Uh, so I think there is an, an opportunity for the economy there. But my question comes back to uh, the point of getting information out to young people and to parents about uh, the options they have available to them. We've never really been able to crack this nut uh, in, in terms of speaking to 
parents and young people about the options that are available to them. And, and while it's welcome that more and more young people are going to universities, it's not the career pathway for everyone. So can you just ex expand further in terms of what options or what is being explored and how we engage with young people and parents on uh, the benefits of many courses that are not university-based? Yes, indeed. I mean, I think it goes back to some of the points that I was making earlier, where you know we need to to be better at getting the information to both learners and parents at the same time. And you know, I was extolling the, the the benefits of current web chat approach rather than careers advisors going into schools, because it means that the parents can be around the table when the careers advisor is speaking to the young person. I also said about trying to simplify the information that goes out about pathways and charity between the, um, the vocational and the academic and map that so that there is something you know, visual that people can look at, see that there is parity between the different pathways um, and involving employers and case studies and things like that in order to get that information out. And then using the, the web-based technology other nations have brought in Scotland and, and you know, just modernising things that we do in terms of careers. It has been, you know, there have been improvements, but there is really, there is more work to do that work. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, thanks to Heather and, and to, to everybody else for the update this morning. It has been really useful um, and we will look forward to continuing to engage as the um, as the, the strategy continues um, and look forward to seeing the, that baseline document when it's uh, published in the, in the near future. So thanks again for, for being with us this morning. Thank you. Okay, so members, um, Peter, is there anything we need to pick up on there? Yeah, Chair, just as you'd said at the, the outset about sharing the Hansard um, with the Education Committee and potentially, if members were agreeable, advocating um, that they receive the, the briefing as well if we know at whatever point they can fit it into their, um, their forward work programme. Um, I think as was highlighted, it also feeds into the likes of the skills strategy. So there's a lot of work that's coming that this will be a key part of, and there's a number of um, other uh, elements of this that I've, I've taken note of that the committee will want to see in terms of papers and planning and so on. So if members are content, we write to the Education Committee, share that answer, and we will, we will keep pursuing this with the department on a, on a regular basis in terms of seeking updates of what they've produced. Chair. Chair. Yeah, Sorry, Sinead. Let me talk about it. If we could uh, get a copy of the baseline um, document that the, that Heather showed us, we could have a, a good talk about it. Yeah, I think she said, Sinead, that it was with the project board at the minute and getting signed off soon. So hopefully we will see that shortly, Peter. And we will be asking for it. Yeah. Is somebody else looking yeah. in there? It would be we could make more targeted questions if we could actually see the document, uh, just to see what direction it travels. We're going in. Yep. No. Agree. Okay. Was someone else looking in there? Yes, I was. Thanks. I didn't. Uh, everyone had made the point about careers advice, um, so I, I didn't really see the need to make it again during the, the presentation. But one of the things that I think it was last week. 
um, we were told about um, shortages in the civil service. I mean, worth asking what's being done to promote a civil service career in schools and to sort of flag that up as an option for young people coming forward as uh, as a career option. So I've just it's just an idea, but I mean we have been told before that there are chronic shortages um, in the civil service. So if the if the Department for the Economy and the Department of Education are maybe doing something jointly to promote a civil service career in our schools, I think that might be a that might be a useful thing to be doing. But it's just an idea. Yeah, I, I think it's a, that's a fair point, Christopher. And and I know the. Um, the Department of Finance have been rolling out some apprenticeships. I think actually they might have extended to some other departments as well. So it might be worth also writing to to the finance minister and asking about that that work. Um, yeah. yeah, as well. Chair, we'll we'll take that forward. We'll ask about what sort of progress there's been made and the sorts of numbers involved. I know it's something that took a really long time to roll out because there were particular. Um, legalities around it, but I know it has started, and I think it's started at more than just um, ground level. I think there are higher apprenticeships as well. But we gather that information and then bring it back to committee for members to decide how strategically they want to approach that. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, answer, just on that, I heard Claire saying that she wanted to be an artist originally. I intended to be a civil service, but then I became a poacher rather than a gamekeeper. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, Chair, can I make a point just from a point that I had raised in relation to the job start? Um, given that we are working with communities in relation to that and the crossovers, is it something that the committee would be interested in doing insofar as writing to the Department for Communities just to understand the, you know, the, the pressures around the budget and the issues? Because my understanding of that theme is that it is ready to go um, and there, it, it does seem to be an issue in and around funding it. Yeah, we can do that. I know there was a significant piece of work done around the, the programme last year, so we can pick up with that. Thank you. Um, okay, so we'll move on then to our next briefing, which is from FSB, Logistics UK, NI Retail Consortium and Retail NI on EU exit and the protocol. So there is a clerk's memo at page 118 of your pack. Um, there is a clerk's memo on the recent briefing from departmental officials on EU exit at page 124. There is briefing slides from the EU exit team um, in the department on page 128. There's a Hansard paper on the issues facing freight and haulage sector at page 134 and an Invest NI news article uh, regarding market access to um, Britain and the EU, EU at page 158. There's correspondence from the Minister on the impact of Brexit on the retail and haulage sectors at page 162 of your pack. So some of the witnesses that are joining us this morning have previously briefed the Infrastructure and ERA committees, and some were also present last week for the discussions with Michael Gove and Mara Shakovich. Um, so this briefing obviously is um, a strategic briefing, so uh, it would be useful to hear from our witnesses um, and to focus, I suppose, on some of that higher level stuff. So the briefing is going to be Hansard as, as well so that we can um, share it with other committees. Um, so if I could welcome into our meeting this morning, Roger Pollan, who's Head of External Affairs at FSB, Seamus Leheny, who is Policy Manager for Northern Ireland Logistics UK, Aidan Connolly, who's Director of the NI Retail Consortium, and Glyn Roberts, who's Chief Executive of Retail NI. So, 
if I hand over to yourselves, and we can't see Aidan, I'm not sure if he's got his camera off, um, just to make an opening statement, and then we'll bring members in for, for questions and discussion. Well, thank you very much, Chair. Um, we'll see if uh, Aidan's camera comes on. Uh, I'm here. My camera doesn't seem to be working, unfortunately. Luckily for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aidan, would you like to, to sort of set the initial context? Yes, sorry about that. Uh, technical uh, difficulties, new laptop and, and all that. Firstly, uh, Chair and, and, and members, thank you uh, for, were, uh, for for your, your interest and, and for asking us to, to come forward. What I want to do very quickly is uh, say where we were, uh, where we are now, what we need, and then to give you a, 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 a couple of bullet points on, on the Shestovich meeting uh, last week. Um, so where we were at the start of the year, there were a, a lot of challenges, um, and those challenges were not just because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We had EU to GB uh, trade had stopped because of COVID. We are in the middle of a lockdown. That meant that more people were buying um, uh, 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 from, from supermarkets rather than eating out. And you have to remember that at this time of the year, it's not uh, unheard of that there are certain shortages and things anyway, uh, quite simply because of the season. Um, at this time of year, we have 90% of lettuce, 85% of tomatoes, about 65% of all soft fruit and veg is coming from the EU anyway. You have to remember, we're already 12 hours uh, less shelf life than places like Bolton or Birmingham, quite simply because of geography. So any sort of time lapse affects freshness and affects uh, 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 availability. Now, um, the, some people, that, for example, uh, the Westminster government have been saying that it's all absolutely fine, there's no sea border, that's not true, and neither is it true that the people who've said that we're starving, there's loads of empty, lots of empty shelves. If we're realistic about it, and this is what one of the key points, you know, never mind the technical detail on this, one of the key points that um, business has been making is that we have to be realistic and we have to be pragmatic about this. Um, so the, the realistic part is that um, the average supermarket has between 40,000 and 50,000 items, uh, product lines, sorry, not items, um, and there's only ever been a couple of hundred uh, missing. So there's been choice issues, there hasn't been food shortages. So where we are now, that is kind of an, an embedded, and, and actually the people who said that there's shortages are doing a great disservice to the retailers, small and large, and to the logistics uh, companies who have been working round the clock to make this work. You have to remember, the Northern Ireland business community uh, did not want the protocol. In fact, um, I'm on record as saying that the uh, Prime Minister um, didn't listen to Northern Ireland business, Northern Ireland communities. However, it is in law and we are making best endeavours uh, to make sure that goods uh, flow freely and that we continue to give choice to Northern Ireland uh, consumers uh, as, as is needed. So we know that there are challenges coming, especially 1st of April, um, with the, the end of the uh, grace period that we will need export health certificates. Um, and the end of the, the derogation on um, uh, parcels. Um, so what we need is, has been summed up um, by the Northern Ireland Business Brexit Working Group, which I have the, the pleasure to convene, um, as four things. Firstly, is stability. That's an immediate extension to those grace periods to continue to allow Northern Ireland business to adapt. Now, that's not a can-kicking exercise because it brings me on to our second point, which is certainty, and that is the certainty of a long-term workable solution that is designed with business, not done to business. Um, thirdly is simplicity, and this is the real uh, heavy point in this, um, that um, there is a sliding scale of simplicity. So at the very bottom, you have digitization. So all of those EHCs, instead of 70 pieces of paper, you have one or none at all. 
um, right through to that digital um, evidence of, of where things are going. In the middle, you have a trusted trader AEO scheme, what we're calling an audit and certified supply chain. That's where we provide evidence uh, to the UK government who can provide it to the EU based on the dead end host that things coming across uh, the uh, GBTNI, and you have to remember 70% of what crosses GBTNI is for retailer shelves, and um, that that is on the principle of dead end host, which means we can tell where it's going, we can tell uh, what shop it's going to, and we can tell where it's being, being sold. So it is a very little risk uh, to the single market or to that customs uh, union. Another part of the simplicity is um, a veterinary agreement. Now, some people talk about Swiss style. Got to remember that the Swiss style agreement is underpinned by 229 other pieces of uh, agreement between the EU and, and, and Switzerland and built up over 40 years. People talk about the New Zealand agreement. New Zealand agreement would actually be quite good. It means 1% checks. That means only seven lorries a day uh, crossing the RSA. That came from a piece of work that Manufacturing and I, uh, Logistics UK and ourselves did a, a couple of years ago. Um, but when things are moving from New Zealand, there are usually uh, very few products, whereas the main uh, supermarket loads would be up to 1,500 products. So all in all, what we need is simplification, uh, a veterinary agreement, but it needs to be a Northern Ireland-style veterinary agreement, one that works for business and people here. Lastly, all this has to be done as far as uh, affordability is concerned. Now, that is two types of affordability. Firstly, um, the affordability and the removal of friction that allows Northern Ireland business, large and small, to continue to be competitive. And that affordability for Northern Ireland households uh, that have half the discretionary income of, of, uh, of, of, of Great British households. Lastly, I'll, I'll quickly talk about uh, what um, Vice President Shevchevich said. So firstly, he said that the uh, EU remains committed to the protocol, to the North-South bodies and the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. And he says that the 8th of December uh, and those derogations that came, those, those grace periods, are, are proof of that. He says that we're dealing with the consequences of Brexit. There is no alternative to the protocol and we have to make this work. There can be no permanent grace periods and no permanent derogations. However, he says that there can be uh, facilitations. One of the things that we put to him is that the grace periods were there uh, until a new trading system was put in place. For us, that principle still stands because that new uh, trading system is not in place. And, and, and he did uh, agree that. Um, thirdly, he says the protocol offers opportunities. That's the creation of new business and uh, the, um, the sustaining of, of current business. And then once we had made our presentation, he, he came back. One of the big things that we've been asking for as the Northern Ireland Business Project Working Group since last September on the UK internal market bill, when, when information from the EU tend to, tended to dry up, was a, a consultative body for business. And um, that has been actively considered and, and we look forward to, to seeing how that uh, goes, goes uh, forward. Um, but he did agree that we have to work on this together, that there must be political leadership on, on both sides so for us, it was uh, a lot, you know, I'm, I'm not gushing about it. You know, we are pragmatic and we are realistic and anything the Commission wants to do will be tempered by the needs and uh, concerns of the 27 uh, member states. Uh, for us, um, I think that it is a step forward as in there is a recognition of the concerns of, of, of Northern Ireland business and there is that willingness to work on, on facilitations. Uh, that's added to the, the uh, uh, admission that there's a need for better communication means that for us, 
uh, last week's meeting was was uh, uh, significant and, and had some progress that we needed. Thanks. Thanks, Aidan. Is anybody else wanting to come in before we open it up to... I suppose if I could just just add to to that, and thank you very much, Chair, and in thanks for that that uh, scene setter. I suppose colleagues here will bring great knowledge across a range of issues, principally within uh, bringing products in for retail and with transport and logistics. FSB's membership is much broader and encompasses a real diversity of businesses, some of which see great opportunity through this, but some of which see existential threat. Uh, and many of which are somewhere in between. So I think what we're going to try and do in this session is just share information with you in a way uh, that best um, helps with your inquiries into this. So going back to what this is all about and our meeting the other day with um, Shevkovich, uh, it's about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we drew their attention to the element in it that said that the EU and UK are determined that the application of the protocol should impact as little as possible on the everyday life of findings in both Ireland and Northern Ireland. And there are key issues that affect the community and the wider population that require urgent and permanent solutions in the spirit of that original commitment by the EU and UK if we're to avoid wider community turning its back uh, or turning against the protocol. Now, they have been characterised as the five Ps, the parcels, pets, potatoes and potted plants. So those are by no means the only issues that are requiring resolution. Uh, they're just totemic ones. But failure to address them in a way that will impact as little as possible in the everyday life of community do not matter will risk being intensely damaging to businesses here. And the other thing, I suppose, was that the protocol's operation can be summarised, or has been summarised, the best of times and worst of times. So in its favour, the protocol offers the perfect conditions for manufacturers from anywhere on the planet to locate in Northern Ireland to benefit from unfettered, tariff-free, quota-free and customs-free access to the UK internal market and the even larger and used England market. Now, that opportunity solely here in Northern Ireland, and so it presents a unique package of English robust laws and ports, highly educated workforce, some of the lowest property costs, five seaports, three airports, plus Dublin Port and Airport very close to hand. And indeed, if I believe that Belfast is now the second largest English-speaking city in the entire EU single market. So that's the best of times lens focused on it. The worst of times, though, was brought home to me last night by one of our members who has a franchise business, and their product comes from GB. Uh, it's a pet food business, and they are being advised that they need to have the um, postcode for the farm and the date of power for the lamb that goes into their pet food. Because they're a franchise, they can't source elsewhere. They can't bring different product or search local in one and Their entire business is dedicated on being able to access that product from GB. So I say there are two different lenses being focused on this, and for some, yes, it is the best of times, but for others, it very much is the worst. Madam Chair, if I could just sort of add to um, what my two colleagues have said. And firstly, a belated happy birthday. I don't want to embarrass you too much. Uh, but I think Eden and Roger have summed up the situations fairly well. I, I think for us, it, it is about how do we get long-term solutions how do we secure unfettered trade? Um, and it isn't a case of kicking the can down the road if we get an extension of the grace period announced today. It, it is about making sure that we have uh, those long-term uh, solutions in place that are not going to inhibit uh, trade. Because I think it, it's, it's worth pointing out that you know businesses in the last year have fallen off so many cliffs. We have a perfect storm of challenges with the pandemic and the protocol. 
I think what we need to do is making sure that we resolve these difficulties and get back to the real focus, and that is recovering our shattered economy and you know dealing with a post-pandemic world that will be uh, very uh, very different. I think from retail eyes perspective, we our 2000 strong membership takes in local wholesalers, independent retailers of all kinds, and local suppliers. So in one sense, that gives us a unique perspective to look at this issue because in many respects, our membership spans the uh, entire supply chain. I, I think for many of our retailers uh, and wholesalers, the situation has been improving. I, I think Aidan's absolutely right to talk of food shortage is, is irresponsible and does cause scare. Um, and you know, this be frank that there are delays, there are challenges, but I think what we all need to focus and knuckle down is having that laser-like focus on solving the problems. And that includes, I think, many of the concerns that uh, I think Unison has as well. Um, and I think it's not about looking back to what we did in 2016 or how we voted in 2016. It's where we go from here in 2021. How do we resolve the problems? How do we get to a point where we can create and have a Northern Ireland, which is, as a region, is outward-looking, global, tolerant, which could be the gateway to Europe, could be the best place anywhere in these islands to locate and start a business. So we're very ambitious, I think, for Northern Ireland. We are optimistic, and we believe we can get through these problems. But I think only if we have that sort of solution-based approach, whether it's Switzerland, whether it's New Zealand, I think the debate has moved on, and I think it's important that we uh, focus uh, on what lies ahead rather than what and who, how people voted, what decisions they made uh, in the last few years since Brexit. So from our perspective, we are uh, keen to uh, work in, in that broader partnership with civic society. Madam Chair, if I could just come in just very briefly as well, I suppose just to endorse what um, the three other witnesses have said. Um, for ourselves in the logistics industry, a bit like what Roger said, our membership is varied. Um, we have 18,000 members across the UK, just under 400 here in Northern Ireland. Um, we surveyed our members um, at the end of January, start of February, and 62% um, of the membership um, who responded to that survey um, said that there were lower volumes on GB to Northern Ireland. 58% of those members said that they expect volumes to go back to the levels they were. However, um, I think it's key to point out that 42% do not anticipate their volumes GB to Northern Ireland to return um, to pre-2021 figures. And the main reason given to that was um, that there's either they're using alternative routes, um, their customers or traders are using new suppliers or there's reduced trading confidence in GB. And that's down to primarily businesses not just being fully aware of their undertakings and responsibilities with moving goods to Northern Ireland. Uh, and really, when we, when we look at um, things like extensions to grace periods, certainly it cannot be uh, a short-term solution. It is the means to give us um, time to implement these new IT systems and I think what Aidan mentioned there as well about a fully audited uh, and, and uh, a fully audited supply chain um, that can be easily traced back to origin, destination, etc. And that's something actually we proposed this time last year as a solution, especially for the movement of food. Um, but obviously key, key to discuss these on, on the discussion this morning, especially around parcels and around um, food supplies. That's all. 
Okay, thank you all for um, your, your briefing. It's been really useful to us, and thanks for the birthday wishes, Glenn. Um, I guess if I could just pick up, first of all, on the, the meeting uh, with the, the Commission and the British Government last week, um, and it was useful to get the, the feedback from that. Aidan, do you have more confidence coming out of that meeting that there is a willingness to look at um, flexibilities within the, the protocol to uh, resolve some of these issues and, and difficulties that businesses are, are facing currently? Well, I, I have to say that um, last week's meeting uh, was a bit of a tour de force uh, from the, the, the business community in Northern Ireland. Those people who were on the call um, were really... Uh, <laughs> top of their game, I have to say, at, at outline what the challenges were, but it was done in a pragmatic way. I think that was reflected back in how... Uh, Minister Gove, CDL Gove, um, uh, reiterated what we said um, and, and, and asked uh, us um, if he had a correct understanding, which he did. Um, the fact that uh, Vice President Shevchevich um, took on board the principle of the need of further facilitations, uh, the, the need for better communication and, and the need for political leadership on this. Now, I am in no way... Um, you know, gushing and uh, uh, about it, um, we, we are very realistic about the challenges that there are. Um, you will have different member states who will be pushing um, that uh, some uh, th that there's no competitive advantage and that the single market is protected, and and, and that is uh, one of the reasons why sometimes it takes so long to get these things. But I do know that the EU has been talking to member states for the past few days since the Shevchenko meeting uh, to. Uh, gauge reaction and, uh, and, and look at facilitation. So it's a lot more positive than where we are. Uh, or, sorry, not more positive than where we have been. Um, doesn't mean that we are going to get a magic customs ferry or magic SPS ferry. It does not. Um, however, I think that um, we have done, as a business community, we've done as much as we can to fully articulate the concerns and also uh, the, the, some of the solutions. Yeah, Aidan, if I could just ask, in relation to some of those uh, flexibilities that aren't yet being properly used, that, that were agreed to back in December, if you could maybe just elaborate a little bit on that, and uh, what is required in terms of the facilitations that you have mentioned, um, where there are currently gaps, and in specifically in relation to the, the veterinary agreement, uh, where you see you know, that being um, a challenge or how realistic you think that reaching agreement on something like that is? So uh, the, 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 the greatest periods are there. We have to remember that the biggest part of this um, was the fact that um, the transition period uh, was a complete misnomer. It was, it, it, but it doesn't sound as good as the protracted negotiation period, which it really was. Um, we only got the CDS system, the TSS system uh, in place in the middle of December. Basically, we had a week and a half to, 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 to uh, get ready for it. The, the, the um, facilitation on partials was only known 18 hours uh, before the end of the transition period. And, and with retail, with logistics, um, with any industry, this is not uh, about flicking a switch. This is about making sure that the computer systems can deal with it, but also training up our staff. So from the person who takes the order um, to the person who fills in the paperwork to the person who actually delivers it, all need to know exactly what they have to do under their legal requirements. And, and that's a big thing to remember. The retailers and, and business, um, GBD and I, they all want to uh, fulfil those, those legal requirements. On the grace periods themselves, they are working uh, well. 
the, the fact is that they're working uh, well because they are needed. Um, they have it, it's not been easy in any way, shape or form. Um, as you can tell by the tired looks from uh, everyone who is uh, giving evidence this morning on this issue, we've all been doing a lot of long days answering uh, queries. Uh, from 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 members, large and small, because that, that's what we've had to do, and and that's that's a big thing to take away from this. That uh, business has been making its it, it best endeavours. Now, as far as the, um, the the facilitations that needed, the digitisation is something that, that can be worked on. A trusted trader scheme, an AEO scheme, uh, auditable and certified supply chain, uh, which is what we're on because AEO and trusted trader make different things to different people. We need something that is that is suitable for Northern Ireland and, and as wide as, as, as possible. Um, but that, that can be done, but it needs political will on both sides. We're very, very clear uh, about that. It needs very clear evidentiary burden, but that, that evidentiary burden should not be prohibitive uh, to, to small and medium enterprises as, as well. And we are, um, as, you know, it needs to cover customs, of course, with CSS is, is there to be part of that. Um, but the biggest thing is, is, is the SPS, uh, those sanitary and phytosanitary uh, checks and, 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 and regulations. And, and that's where um, DEFRA is currently working on, on different models. That's an embryonic stage at the moment. However, we are making progress. And, and that is the, the thing that, you know, as, as Clint said, it can't be can-kicking, but there, there is progress that has been uh, tangible uh, and, and that is happening. On the veterinary agreement, um, that sort of strays into the world of, of politics. And again, it, it's what the political will is. It is all down to uh, number 10 and also um, that 80 majority in, in, in the House of Commons. Now, as you know, um, the uh, House of Commons actually voted uh, against uh, giving us half more say in, in trade agreements. So this was an initial, uh, 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 an additional uh, agreement. There's a good chance that it wouldn't actually go through there. Um, however, it is, you know, for some people would argue that it is not Brexit if there is a, a, a veterinary agreement. Um, to me, there is, you know, that we, we need to sidestep politics, and that's what we do in business. For me, there is a very, very simple equation in this. If we have a veterinary agreement, it's equivalence. Um, it doesn't have to be dynamic alignment, it has to be recognition, equivalence. And then there's a, a sliding scale as to how uh, how strong it can be. But the more that we have that uh, alignment, recognition, and equivalence, the less friction there is GB to NI on goods of animal origin and on goods of plant origin, um, and, and that is uh, a, a, you know it's something that we have been asking for, uh, for since 2016. That if there was anything that we were going to get, we would need that something uh, along the, the, the line of a veterinary agreement to allow that free flow of trade. Big up for us, but again, it, it's in the realms of our, our, our political masters. Aidan, um, thanks for that. Is, is, that's um, a really useful overview there. Um, and I suppose just to pick up on your, your final point there um, around the, the, the alignment and uh, from the beginning of this week, the export health certificates were required on um, chilled meats. If you maybe give us a wee bit of an update as to how you, uh, that has been going. Uh, so it's 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 going fine. Um, so we, we had, as you know, um, we had a derogation on chilled meats, and you have to remember, um, you know, people people are are seeing it as, as as a bad thing, and friction is bad. But you have to remember that the the, the um, uh, 
the, the export health certificate was brought in on Monday of this week. Um, before that, we had a, something called a STAMNI, which is basically a self-certification on those products of one and large which were on cookmates. The, the PNR left prohibited and restricted left. You have to remember that those things don't go into anywhere else that, uh, that uh, anywhere else that is um, administering the, the single market rules. That doesn't happen. So for us, this was a derogation, which was good that it allowed that to happen. So um, the re we, we should have had export health certificates from the 1st of uh, January. But the reason we didn't is because it didn't exist, because nowhere else under the single market rules has that. So um, they're in now. Um, they're only a small minority of, of, of products. Of course, they're, they're, they're costly and there they're are they're a source of friction. Um, but they are continuing to allow it to flow. Um, and for us, it's also quite a good bellwether, quite a good test of how things would work out on the 1st of April if we still need those export health certificates. Um, they, for, for all products of animal origin, and, and, and even after two days, we are talking that it is major struggles. Um, you know, we, we have to be pragmatic and we have to be realistic about the challenges. We will do it. Um, but there will be cost and there will be possible delays and, and, and there are there are a lot of moving parts that all need to fall into place by the first people if, if, if this is going to, to, to work. So um, at the moment, yes, it's working between a minority products that need it. First of April is that big train coming down the tracks. And again, that can only be fixed to have that flexibility from the EU and the UK. Thanks for that. That's useful to know. Um, I guess just a final question from me before, and uh, this um, will pick up on points made by, by a number of you in your opening remarks. Um, yeah, yesterday evening, the Assembly passed a motion calling for an overarching economic strategy to deal with the new trading realities. Um, if I could just maybe ask how you think that it's important that we respond to the, the new trading realities to support businesses to adapt and to take advantage of any um, opportunities that are there from the, the new arrangements, uh, how you view that that should be done or what specific ways that uh, that businesses need to be supported in, in line with the new strategy in respect of that? Well, sure, if I could maybe uh, answer, I, I read through the Hansard, obviously, of the uh, debate yesterday, it was a quite a wide-ranging debate. I think that there's one thing, whilst we're all focused in the here and now and how we can work through the, the current challenges we're facing with the protocol, we also need to ask ourselves, what is the overall uh, long-term vision about how we build relationships with the EU? I mean, over the years that we were members there, um, we built up a lot of contacts, a lot of good networks, a lot of good uh, contacts right across governments, regions of the European Union. And I think one of the things that we perhaps now need to ask the executive office is uh, the executive office in Brussels. I think that needs to be certainly uh, uh, obviously maintained, but I think enhanced as well. Obviously, Invest in I are in that office as well. So I think that needs certainly a new work plan to reflect the new realities of what we are, that we can continue to build on the contacts and relationships, and obviously the relationship that the protocol has that we have with the uh, single market. And the other issue, is I think it is important that the European Commission reopen an office uh, in uh, Belfast. And I think not so much to, to, to do what it did before. Um, it has to reflect the new realities that we have left the European Union, but also that you know we are part 
and um, have a relationship with the single market. But also, you know, if you reflect that the, the Chinese, Chi we have a Chinese consulate, we have an American consulate, we have a Polish consulate, um, you know, all big, huge players in the global scheme of things. But we don't have a, a, an office from the European Commission. And obviously, you know, let's not forget that's a market of over 450 million. So we would urge, I think, that, and this is a takeaway for the UK government, to think again about uh, this issue and allow it. A, a, a European Commission office to open, to act, I suppose, as, as a vocal point for uh, engagement, not just with business, but broader civic society. Because, I mean, we're dealing with a huge, I mean, there are the big ticket issues that we're all having to grasp with. But, you know, we're day and day and daily get a lot of queries, very technical queries from very small retailers that, you know, maybe are not attached to a wholesaler that are bringing forward maybe a pound or two here and there. And very technical issues around particular products that are facing delayed. And it is probably difficult for us to, to, to get immediate answers to that. I think that if we had a European Commission office that could help deal with those queries, but also act, you know, as a, as a key part of that new relationship that we as a, as a region need to build, not just with the EU, but I think with the rest of the world. I think I've said that in my open remarks. We have a vision that we want to see Northern Ireland as an open, global-facing region that is the gateway to the EU that plays all the good relationships that we have in terms of the UK, the island of Ireland, that our connectivity with North America. So I think there, we, whilst we're very focused in terms of where we are with the problems, I think we need to ask, start asking the questions, well, what does that long-term vision look like? What does success look like for us as a region? And retail and I is part of trade and I, which is manufacturing and I and uh, hospitality also. And as you're probably aware, I think this committee helped launch our 2030 uh, report uh, <laughs> last year, where we asked that question, what type of Northern Ireland do we want to achieve or look like or uh, arrive at by 2030? So we need to see that long-term thinking about where we see ourselves in the world. And I think that was very much more of the debate last night in the assembly was. Madam Chair, if I, if I just come in very briefly as well, um, I think um, obviously there is a responsibility of the EU here as well to hold up their end of the bargain and something we said to Maro Sefcovic last week is that a lot of member states, a lot of businesses in the EU are not aware of the unfettered access that Northern Ireland has with the continent. Um, so I think there has to be promotion of Northern Ireland as a place to invest in, but also um, for business here, I think Invest NI have a big part to play. Um, I was dealing with an inquiry this morning from a large engineering firm based in Northern Ireland here, and they were asking, how do we get our goods to the EU, avoiding customs, i.e. capitalising on our unfettered access? So I was able to give them, it's, very, it's quite simple, you use a T2 transit document and you bypass all those customs controls and potential tariffs, etc. And so I think that there is work, obviously, for Invest NI, but also we have to put pressure on the EU to, um, you know, stick to their end of the bargain, really. Chair, could I just pick up on, on uh, Shapes' point there? I think it, it goes to the question you asked before, Lynn's answer, which I think is around the sense of urgency that needs to accompany this, because we're looking at a lot of businesses that will disappear unless they get to the, the settlement end state quickly. I think that's something that the committee could uh, beneficially do is keep that, that pressure on everywhere it can be to, to get through where we're going 
and get settled straight at the end as quickly as possible. If there's an opportunity, if it's not seen, it's a lot. Thanks for that. Um, no, that. That's something that we can pick up on and, and some, reflect some of those points um, after today's meeting uh, to, as with the Minister and to the, to the Executive and to invest as well. Um, okay, so I'm going to bring in some other members for questions. Is this my Yes. Um, Sinead, can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Oh, sorry, uh, we'll come back to Sinead. She's lost connection. Can we bring in John O'Dowd, please? And just to, can I just ask uh, anybody who's not speaking to mute because there's a wee bit of feedback coming through when uh, people are speaking. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you to you all for your presentation. Uh, very informative, uh, and it's crucial that we have real-time informed evidence being presented in relation to the protocol, uh, the opportunities presented by the protocol, and the difficulties presented by the protocol. I listen to some media reports, you'd almost believe that we require UN food drops or a Berlin style blockade buster uh, operation to go ahead instead of the reality uh, that has been outlined by yourselves today. Uh, I have a couple of questions, and they're largely around the same issue as the chair raised during her last question. And it's around how the executive helps businesses to for the want of a better term, exploit the opportunities presented by the protocol, how we create jobs, businesses, prosperity for the people who live here. And added to that, if we continue to ask for or lobby for extensions uh, to the grace periods, is there not a danger then that, that businesses and indeed the mindset becomes that uh, we can put this off to another day and we're looking at a problem rather than looking at an opportunity. So while I, I understand the rationale for extending or the call to extend the grace periods, I think there may be uh, an unintended consequences of that. And um, what would your views be on that? I think if I, I may just first, I think it's very clear and, and I think we've all said it that this cannot be can kicking. Um, I think that it, it goes back to those four points. The first one being immediate stability and that is uh, through those extensions to the grace periods, but it has to lead uh, to certainty, and that certainty is not just for Northern Ireland business, for, but for those people who uh, want to in, in, in invest in, in Northern Ireland. There are some uh, great opportunities that, that are going to come, especially if you are in the manufacturing sector, especially if you're adding uh, value and then selling into GB um, or, or to um, Ireland or, or, the, um, or, or, or the EU. And that's very clear. But one of the principles in which the Northern Ireland Business Brexit Working Group was founded was no sector left behind. And what we need, as far as those grace periods, as far as those facilitations, is to ensure that we take all sectors with business of business uh, with us. There are going to be some changes. It is a new trading regime. It's the biggest uh, economic uh, shift as far as supply chains and, and, and how we trade. Uh, since the foundation of the, the, the state 100 years ago. What we need now is to make sure that we do get enough immediate facilitations to allow a strong trading system uh, to, to occur. On the opportunities, what we also need and, and what was severely lacking, if you look at the millions of pounds that the Westminster government um, spent uh, on the campaign, get ready to trade with Europe, 
they did not have a get ready to trade with Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, similarly, the EU admitted that they hadn't done uh, something similar. And, and what we have asked for, as well as the intimate technical uh, communication that we need with both the UK government and the EU, is that they actively promote Northern Ireland and our uh, position uh, with access to both markets, to both EU uh, member states and uh, to uh, GB uh, companies and, and, and GB and investors. And we have that undertaking from them. Um, that that they, they, they will uh, do that. I think, though, a lot of this, um, any sort of trade change, um, always is uh, business-like certainty, shall we say, and any sort of trade change always takes a while before people are willing to invest. Now, what we've already seen last week was two uh, large contracts um, that went to uh, Northern Ireland Agri-Food Processors, um, two retailers, one was Aldi, one was Lidl. I think both contracts were somewhere around half a million pounds. But they were for EU and Ireland, and those were facilitated by the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it's shown that there are opportunities there. What we have to work on now is that we have that immediate stability to mean that people can adapt, and that's what businesses are trying to do. Thanks, Aidan. Uh, I think Aidan's covered off most of the points in that. The one I would say, though, is uh, to your first question, which was about the uh, what the executive should be doing in regard to jobs. I think one of the key things is to avoid losing jobs unnecessarily uh, because of the application of the protocol. So uh, if you, we, we have a member who is a wholesaler. Uh, they're a Northern Ireland-based company, but they operate island-wide and they have employees on both sides of the border. Uh, they bring in about 7,000 product lines and 10% of their staff are now focused on doing the paperwork to continue to do that. And because of the way they operate, they bring stuff into their Northern Ireland-based warehouse. So it's not clear whether it is at risk or not until they get the end customer, which could be either side of the border. So that business is looking now at the prospect of having to become a Northern Ireland-only company and give up its business in the South simply in order to, to minimize some of the disruption it's facing. So that's the sort of one where rather than looking about growing jobs in another business, let's protect those ones by making sure the protocol is operating effectively. Uh, well, I accept, I fully understand why uh, your sales will represent your businesses and, and do that. And I'm certainly not seeking the loss of any jobs or the loss of any sector. But the strategy of leaving no sector behind could in fact be interpreted as that all sectors are left behind because we don't move forward. There's no economic strategy or trading arrangement that will encompass every business. Businesses open and close in all sorts of environments. And I fully accept and agree that the best environment for businesses to operate in and to flourish in is a stable trading uh, uh, environment. But I think it is a lot and maybe impossible of an ask to say that all businesses will be sustained going into the future. I, I, I'm not aware of any economic strategy that could deliver that. And no, the danger is that you don't create new businesses, you don't create new jobs, you don't create new opportunities. That Take, completely take that on the chin, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is no sector left behind in the support that they need and providing them with the opportunities. There are going to have to be changes. There is going to have to be. There are going to have to be adaptations, and that's very clear. Even um, in the, the the first sort of uh, eight weeks that we have been in, or seven weeks that we've been in under the protocol. 
it's not uh, that um, there will not be winners and losers in this. It's very obvious already that there will be. For me, the no sector left behind is that everyone has the opportunity uh, to make their voice heard. Everyone has the opportunity uh, to adapt if it is possible. And they also have the opportunity to articulate their asks. And that, for me, is uh, the importance of the Northern Ireland Business Brexit Working Group. Not that we're going to you know, get that magic wand, but that every sector under our umbrella has the chance to fully articulate those arguments and, and make those asks. Okay, thanks for that clarification. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, if you need no um, bring in Claire, please. Oh, sorry. Thanks. Thanks, Chair. Um, thank you and good morning, everyone. Um, I'll declare an interest here. I'm actually a member of SF, uh, FSB. Um, I, I don't have a business, but I, I use it for other purposes. Um, I just... I <laughs> um, I, I suppose I just want to talk to um, the, the difficulties that I'm hearing from a constituency level for small business in particular. I know that there's a political debate around this. Um, I, you know, certainly put my cards on the table and think there are opportunities uh, with Brexit and with the protocol. However, if there are going to be challenges in relation to that, we do need to address those and we need to address them in a meaningful way. I don't think we can overlook people's issues. You know, even commentary in relation to Amazon, you know, an awful lot of small businesses use Amazon as uh, as their supplier because it's a gateway into those cheaper um, uh, projects or, or, or products. And I don't think that we can diminish that because, you know, it's not just about me as a consumer or anyone else, you know, being able to receive a product. It's actually a, a, an important cog in many small business wheel. So I, I do think those issues need to be addressed. Um, there was an interesting uh, article, I think it was in the newsletter this morning um, from Sam McBride when he talked about uh, the issues are the big issues are yet to come, and over the next four months, we will see an awful lot of businesses pu pulling out of Northern Ireland. I was just keen to hear your comments in and around that, because for me, I think what we need to do now is put our best foot forward and try and ensure that there is limited, uh, or, or try and ensure as much access, you know, east, west, north, south as well, because I do think the east, west issues will have an impact on north, south, and I think sometimes that issue is is not being uh, looked at and you know I'm, I'm i have constituents who are saying to me claire look can we drive a van down to cork to pick up a supply um because we can't get it from our normal supplier in england and i'm saying to them no, no i'm not sure you can because covid regulations which also play into this so you know we're in a very complicated difficult um situation there are issues i don't um, you know, particularly for small and medium uh, enterprises in Northern Ireland, which makes up a significant part of our economy. I very much agree with all the points you've raised, and a lot of them are ones that are coming through to us from, from the, the wider membership. Uh, I suppose what we need to keep everybody's attention focused on is that commitment in the protocol that says uh, it should impact as little as possible on the everyday life of communities in both Ireland and Northern Ireland. Keep that as our sort of guiding light throughout the negotiations and see what we're trying to achieve. Uh, your point is very well made about Amazon. So I, I had a business phone me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they were needing fragile stickers. They got an order on a Saturday morning for some product that had to go out on Monday morning. So they needed to get fragile stickers to put onto that product. They went online onto Amazon uh, thinking using their Amazon Prime account, they could have it delivered on the Sunday and use it on the Monday. The first six stockists that had the right product said they were no longer serving the Northern Ireland marketplace. 
Now, that was despite there being a grace period in place for parcels, but that business had, or those six businesses had taken the decision that dealing with us here was in some way complicated and was something they were no longer going to do. And so that's a risk that we have. We'll see that starting to, to, to multiply out if we don't get a permanent uh, solution in place as quickly as possible so as people know the new steady state that they're operating with. But I think you're also right that a lot of small businesses will use Amazon as the marketplace both to buy and to sell their product. Uh, so for, for it's going back to that, that purpose of what the, the commitment and the protocol about uh, impacting as little as possible, we need to make sure that when it's actually of no risk and no potential leakage to the single market, that we just allow that to be uh, facilitated. And that's the pressure we need to keep on to, on to Maris Chefkic and uh, Michael Gove to get to that point as quickly as possible so we don't see destruction of businesses on the way to the, whatever that new situation is going to look like. May I come in on the newsletter, please? Um, mm -hmm. there, Claire, we need to be really, really, really careful with the language in this. Okay. Um, so um, no retailer has said that they're pulling out. Um, it was about delivery to uh, Northern Ireland. And I have severe queries about that. Um, firstly, and most importantly, because it is not what any of our members are telling us whatsoever. Um, they are uh, committed to Northern Ireland. Those who have been unable, you got to remember, 18 hours beforehand, uh, before the end of the transition period was when uh, we found out what the trading regulations on parcels would be. And we, a lot of them um, have had to set up whole new systems. Even the biggest guys have had to set up whole new systems because they don't uh, uh, usually uh, deliver outside of, of, of the, uh, the UK customs union and, and, and single market. And, 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 and to be fair to them, they have worked very, very hard to come back online. But let's, let's look at, at, at the poll you're talking about. It was done at the start of the year. Um, when everyone was under severe pressure and, and, and things have a lot of things have been leveled out. It was not done by a polling company. It was done by a marketing firm. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know how much they traded with Northern Ireland beforehand. Were they sending two or three parcels a year or were they doing uh, lots of business? We don't know the questions, how those were, were weighted. And I think that the biggest thing is that it is not reflective of, uh, of, of, of the experience of, of our guys. I'm sure Roger and Glenn will want to come in as far as the experience of their guys. But for us, um, we do not recognize that headline or that poll as being anything to do with the reality. And again, I'll underline that point. It's not about people pulling out of Northern Ireland. It's about some had said they wouldn't be able to deliver to Northern Ireland, but we, 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 would, we would repudiate what that says. Yeah. Claire, if I, if I come in there as well, you mentioned about the parcel side of things. That, that's a good example of why we need the grace period, because some people ask, why do you need a grace period? You're kicking the can down the road, but we need it for practical reason. And I'll give you one for the Express, so for the Amazons, the DHLs, the Hermes, etc. Is that HMRC are working on a new IT system, especially for the, the, the fast-paced carriers who move that stuff. And they, they actually call it, it's called the super reduced data set for business to consumer parcels. Uh, and if you're an express carrier, you'll be able to avail of this IT system. Now, HMRC isn't going to have that system ready until quarter four this year. So that's why we need the grace periods. It's not to try and put our head in the sand, but it's so that HMRC and other stakeholders can play catch up. Because like Aiden, Aiden said there, the, the courier companies and the parcel operators only got guidance on um, New Year's Eve about what they faced on the 1st of January. I mean, Claire, maybe if I could... Just add to that, I think Lynn's absolutely right. I mean, that news better article. Um, I think there certainly should be a very strong health warning about it. 
Um, I mean, we were engaging with the Consumer Council quite early on in, in January, and certainly those early days, Nathan's absolutely right, those, those regulations came in the 31st of December, hours away from this becoming uh, law. So I think you had a situation where it was uh, over 100, I think, retailers that were sitting in this delay as why we get this new system fixed. That number has dramatically come down um, and is changing all the time. And I don't think that misleading headline that you said particularly helps. And it, it reflects that what we've always said, because we can get very jargon focused in this whole debate about the EU exit. What does it mean at the end of the day? It means quite simply that ordinary working families can get can get their parcels when they need it. Uh, and particularly, obviously, if you look, think about this in the context of lockdown, where many more families are relying on mail order for a variety of products, and I'm hoping that with the restoration of click and collect on the 8th of March, that that would certainly help local businesses. But I think as well, ultimately what it means, and for many of our food retailers, it's about ensuring that ordinary working families don't pay more for their grocery and their food and all their important products. That's, that's the end of all of this. That is what we need to be always keeping the focus on, is an EU exit that works for business, but also an EU exit that works for ordinary working families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And I appreciate you um, kind of providing balance to that article because I think that's important to put that on record. And I, and I do agree with you as far as the preparedness around this. This was very last minute. And uh, what that led to is that businesses in England, and I have been speaking with some businesses in GP, and they're telling me that we did everything within our power to be as prepared as possible. We do recognise Northern Ireland as a marketplace, a very important part, but they felt the information wasn't coming from the UK government, and I think that's really regrettable. And I would hope to see the UK government put more support in place for those businesses, because again, it's not just about Northern Ireland, it's about the businesses across the GP coming you know, back and forth. And also, you know, into Ireland as well. I think you know that, that's important consideration. Again, just to kind of um, hit home about the, you know the, the, the concerns that I have about diminishing the issues around small businesses. You know, uh, you're 100 in saying that Amazon is a marketplace, and you know the future of small business in Northern Ireland as well, particularly for young people, is to utilise that marketplace and to make an awful lot of money. And, and you know, I think it's a good opportunity to be realising when we're, we're thinking about all these uh, particular challenges. You know, certainly I, I look forward to the issue in relation to Brexit being worked out over the, the coming uh, months. And indeed, I do think those risks need to be extended. Um, but if there are other uh, uh, difficulties with that, we have an awesome look at it and try and fix them because we all suffer as so Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Um, can we bring in Gordon, please? Gordon, I think you're on mute. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Yeah. Thanks very much, everyone, and uh, everyone's contribution. And, and say, uh, I was just saying, we're, we're all disappointed we can't see Aidan, but no doubt we'll see him on the news tonight. <laughs> I think that our only might publish a person can, can get. <laughs> And uh, maybe you're limited on, your, on the coverage you're getting today. But uh, I do welcome your statement that Northern Ireland business did not want the protocol. I hope you remember that. You keep putting that message out there, Aidan. I know you will. We can rely on you. But um, 
on a, on a more, you know, getting down to suppose more specific issues, as Claire has mentioned, we're getting feedback from you know, businesses locally. Uh, Seamus, uh, could you maybe elaborate a bit on the knowledge sector? I've been in contact with a large company and um, they have a problem. The groupage issue, has that been sorted where you cannot break down container loads of goods coming in? That was, was a major issue. Um, obviously, a lot of our suppliers and businesses in Northern Ireland are bringing in small quantities often and they break down loads and, and obviously move them out to retailers in various sectors. Has that issue been addressed, Seamus? It's been addressed, but it's not been fixed yet, Gordon. Um, it's still a work in progress. And, and there's there's two aspects to groupage. There's your normal ambient. Um, so your normal widgets coming in on groupage, you, you might have upwards maybe of 50 consignments on a trailer. Um, so that that's very admin heavy at the moment. Um, the trader support service, a lot of hauliers are using that. Initially, the TSS wasn't geared up for multiple consignments. It was, it was designed initially for straightforward single consignment loads. Um, they have been upgraded. They have upgraded the system recently uh, to take into consideration groupage. So that, that's getting a little bit better. And generally, I'm not getting too many complaints from members who are moving that type of groupage. Uh, but it's still, don't get me wrong, it's still taking a lot of work to do that. Where the problem has been um, has been with the SPS, the food produce, um, because you're going from multiple sites picking up food and technically that food had to be sealed and you couldn't break the seal. Now, we worked, um, myself, several members and, and the likes of uh, Hayden and, and other business organizations worked with Dara and I have to commend Dara. Um, they've been first class in trying to help with us and act on our behalf, um, making representations to DEFRA as well. So we, we worked out a solution whereby you seal the pallets rather than seal the trailer. Now, there's a 15-step instruction process for this, and um, we've re we've gathered feedback on that how to improve that. Now, there's a few operators who are using this at the moment. It's still at trial stage; it hasn't been properly stressed yet. But there are groupage consignments of food moving into Northern Ireland now. But it's very cumbersome. It's slower, and it's 100% checked. So you have to pre-notify Dara. You have to go for inspection, and that's to build up trust. But I suppose the EU showing that listen, we're capable of doing this. We're trustworthy. Here's how it's happening. And then after a while, you'd expect those physical inspections to to drop significantly. But um, the system needs digitized. And there's one of our large members um, who's working with one of our haulage members. That's a wholesaler and a haulier. And they're working with the Trader Support Service to digitize the system to make it faster, more streamlined. So we're gradually getting there. What we don't need is the end of the grace period on the 1st of April, because that will just add a ton of work onto this process. So I think um, the, the, the emphasis has to be on easing the burden, the checks, the formalities, simplification, um, and avoiding the EHCs as much as possible. Okay, what about the issue of empty trailers coming back? Uh, has that been addressed for there's difficulties, you know, obviously getting, getting a load to, to bring back and because the supplies weren't coming forward? Yeah, so th this is a problem. Um, a lot of our members, um, the rule of thumb with a lot of operators, um, depending on your commodities, some are okay with this. It depends on your customer base. 
Others are saying the rule of thumb is one in three trailers that goes to GB is coming back empty. So that's adding significant costs because obviously you're paying a driver to drive back to Liverpool or Cairn Ryan and ship an empty unit back. Um, generally around when we surveyed our members for the month of January, revenue was down members between 25-30%. And that was down to reduced volume. And, and what we have, we have a trade-in balance on the IRC now. So goods are leaving Northern Ireland bound for GB unfettered and business is good. Um, our products, primarily agri-food products, are still hitting the supermarket shelves of England, Scotland, Wales. The problem is, and it's probably not helped by COVID because um, there's the certain elements of the economy still locked down, is that a significant amount of those lorries going over laden are struggling to find loads to come back to Northern Ireland. So they're having to make that decision, do we park up and wait or do we take a hit and get the lorry back to Northern Ireland empty because I suppose the problem is if we don't get the lorries back to Northern Ireland, whether they're laden or unladen, we fail to be able to um, service the continued exports leaving Northern Ireland. We've got to get those trailers back, especially refrigerated trailers, back here to make sure the products still leave Northern Ireland. So we did ask, we had a meeting um, with um, uh, Michael Gove and the uh, Secretary of State um, a few weeks ago, and we, we did request that there be some financial assistance to hauliers who are in this bracket with regards to the shipping of the MD trailers from um, GB to Northern Ireland. We haven't heard any word back on that yet, but they're aware of that. Okay, that's good. And the trusted traders scheme is working reasonably well. We, we, we've heard hear bits about it, but how satisfied are you, your members, with the trusted traders scheme? Is it for the, the movement of um, food produce? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 net, the net's been, you know, it's covered most uh, sectors with food on that. I haven't had any um, complaints from members that haven't been included on in that. I think people that have had to um, avail of that have been able to do so. Um, but I think we need a more long-term solution to this. I think, you know, what, what, what the other witnesses have said, we need a certified and audible supply chain whereby you, you are a trusted trader moving produce into Northern Ireland. And like that, you'd almost treat it like um, like uh, the VAT return principle where um, you're an accredited trader moving goods mm. into Northern Ireland and you would volunteer the evidence of compliance whereby you know, biannual, annually um, to the authorities. You might be open maybe to spot checks. When I speak to businesses, they would be happy with that. And what it means, it means the vast majority of produce come to Northern Ireland would be would be unfettered to a degree. They would still have to complete some formalities, but it limits the friction and the admin. Okay, Grant, thanks for that. Um, just generally, and say we have, you know, um, businesses, we've had a, a fellow who sells cheese here locally, um, can't, can't get, he, he was buying it in England, obviously, under retail, and he cannot get it, uh, the supplier to supply him from England to Northern Ireland now, since uh, the beginning of the year. So there are ongoing issues. Uh, I had a message from a, a business there in North Down last night. Uh, he manufactures garden sheds, and um, his supplier for hinges um, says that the, the batch of hinges are, are stuck in an in quarantine. You know, that just does not run well with people. It really fine businesses. The public just are getting so frustrated with the whole thing. 
and you know unnecessary delays that are that are there and need to be addressed. Gordon, if I could just maybe come back, you know, obviously all my colleagues on the call are getting similar queries. I mean, you know, we're getting calls from members. You know, you have small heparin run smell health food businesses that can't get vitamins and other supplements through. Um, you know, we have ongoing issues with uh, horticultural uh, retailers as well. And the sheer number and diversity of very technical queries that we get on a daily basis, which are very, very challenging to get answers to. And I think that's why that we do need to see uh, better lines of communication so we can answer and get those problems resolved with the European Commission or with the, whether it's an executive issue, whether it's a cabinet office issue, uh, or whether it's, it's, it's bigger problems and challenges with protocol. So absolutely, we get that. And you know, let, let's not forget the huge burden that this protocol has on those very small independent retailers you know, who are weighed down by the, the bureaucracy, the form filling. You know, and, and, you know, I want those businesses focused on their future. I want those businesses focused on how they can recover from the pandemic and the economic fallout of the pandemic. I don't want those businesses stuck in filling in forms. I want those businesses looking to the future and helping to rebuild our, our economy. So it's important we address uh, the, the many bureaucracy challenges that those businesses face. And we need that level playing field for, for all businesses, large and small, to, to uh, make sure that they can make the best out of this difficult situation. Okay, thanks for that, everyone. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gordon. Um, Seamus, can I just ask, has there been any improvement in the issues in Dublin Port? Um, slightly, sli slight improvement. Um, I have spoken to some operators this week um, who um, would historically use Dublin Hollyhead for their Northern Irish trade. Dublin Hollyhead's the fastest route to market if you're um, sending or receiving goods really from the south of England. Um, a lot because of the problems with Dublin, especially in January, they started rerouting via Cairn Ryan and Liverpool, but they were incurring additional costs with the additional mileage, etc., and driver's hours. Some operators are now taking the decision to move back to Hollyhead Dublin, um, but D Dublin, you know, the Dublin routes are still about 50% down year on year. Um, there's still a lot of traffic avoiding Dublin Hollyhead. Um, the checks the moment we do have a sister association in the Republic of Ireland, FTA Ireland. They said the level of checks is around about 15% now. But the problem with Dublin, I suppose, it's not because Northern Ireland is a lighter touch than Dublin, it's to do with the IT um, system. Um, there's the what they call the IT system in Dublin is AIS. And basically that's been unable to cope with the sheer volume of declarations going through it at peak time. So at the moment of Northern Ireland, we already have, we have grace periods. We have, we have uh, the grace periods on, on parcels uh, and on, on a lot of the SPS issues. Dublin doesn't have those. So there's a higher level of declarations having to be made. And that AIS system has crashed a number of times. Um, leading to trucks being delayed. We had one member of ours from County Tyrone had lorries parked up for two nights in Dublin Port with their drivers. And that wasn't even a load coming to Northern Ireland. It was a load coming from Wales to Donegal. Um, but they were just caught in the middle because of this IT glitch. So there's slight improvement there, but there's still a lot of work to do. And what I've said to departments here in Northern Ireland, we really have to learn from the mistakes being made in Dublin and the issues there, because ultimately we might have to face some of the obstacles that they have. All right, 
no, thanks for that. That's, that's good to get that update. Um, I think Sinead is back with us. Um, Sinead, do you want to come in now? Can we bring Sinead McLaughlin into the spotlight, please? Hi, can you hear me? Yep, we can. Thank you very much. And, and apologies, folks, I had to jump off. We had uh, good news announcements today for our heads of terms for our city day uh, in Derry, in Strabane. So um, it was a pleasure to jump off for something really positive. So thank you very much for your presentation earlier on this morning. Uh, and I think the big takeaway is about being pragmatic and being realistic and looking at where we are currently at the moment in relation to this. And I don't think any political uh, representative like the protocol. Um, we are burdened with it as a result of Brexit, but uh, I certainly uh, am in the in, in the that looking for solutions uh, in order for businesses to overcome this, and I'm particularly uh, keen for, for our SME to get as much support um, that they can in order to overcome some of the difficulties that they are. And I, I really welcome to, to hear from, from uh, the briefing team this morning that there is there appears to be a willingness uh, from UK and from you uh, to, to facilitate some some of um, you know a, a smoother um, access into to, to both markets and that's really important for our business community in uh, Northern Ireland. My my uh, ask, I suppose, is how do we actually support our small businesses? And I'm, I'm, apologies if this has been asked earlier. How do we support them in order for them to get through some of the bureaucracy that they're faced with? What what training can we give them? I had a, a call from a, from a, a local firm yesterday. Um, and they want to do the right thing, they want to complete the forms properly, but they're, they're kind of swimming in the dark. They don't know who to turn to in order to get some of the questions that they want answered. Uh, and and they, they have said that they have asked questions from the best in line, and they, you know, they were kind of pointed uh, in the direction that wasn't really helpful to them. I, I put them in contact with, with the chief city you're on the bespoke one one training session regarding um, the, the trusted trader service. But really we need to be more, you know, focused on overcoming some of these obstacles and really supporting these businesses as to try and fill in the forms and, and overcome the barriers that they're facing. I suppose if I could jump in there first, uh, Sinead, and thanks very much for the question. Uh, the, the trouble is identifying which problems we're trying to address, uh, and there are so many of these, and they, they are changing rapidly, so as some uh, problems are identified and solutions are brought forward, they, they can disappear. Other ones, the problem may be on the, uh, on the other side of the water, may lie uh, with the deep businesses to find them. Uh, some of the problems are just a sheer lack of capacity. So I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if you're on the call, about the uh, wholesale member we have who's using 10% of their staff to input numbers to track all of the products, the 7,000 product lines that they bring to R&M. Uh, so difficult to see what you can do for them without a complete systemic change, or systemic change. So they're throwing resource at it on a temporary basis, hoping we get through the grace periods and we get to an end solution. Um, just to uh, chair, we're getting a lot of feedback on this. Wonder if it's possible to get some microphones muted. Yeah, if anyone who isn't speaking could mute, please. 
Thanks very much. So uh, I think one of the things that the executive can do and the Department of the Economy can probably do is to invest a lot of uh, time, capacity and resource into training so as we have more people available, but not necessarily to sell that to small businesses, not necessarily for them to take on as a permanent overhead, but to have those sorts of advisory resources available to them to use as and when they need them as they work their way through this sort of uh, ever-changing landscape until we get uh, more towards the, the stability that, that Aidan talked about that we need to get at the end of this period. So that will be our new trading environment. So assistance to get us through and then uh, people can then take on their own uh, structures once we know exactly what uh, environment we're operating in on a more permanent basis. I, I mean, the company that I'm speaking about, they have uh, about four staff in total. Um, so it is a very small operation, but they are um, importing and exporting um, and they want to do the right thing. So therefore, I think it, there's a knownness um, on, on us within within the, uh, the economy to make sure that the resources are there and the samples are there and the walkthrough is there. You know, once, they, once businesses get their head around what is the expectation, uh, and that it will be much easier for them to go through those processes. But at the minute, uh, the, the signposting and the training isn't as easily identifiable for some of those things that it should be. I think that, that's true, and I suppose in some ways it's why we all employ professionals, you know, so any business will use an accountant or an auditor rather than actually learning to do all of those things themselves. And the risk, therefore, is that you end up needing uh, additional bureaucracy just to be compliant, and that may make you uh, uncompetitive and destroy your business in any case. So I think what we need to keep our focus on, though, is simplifying the system. And so, Jim uh, made a, a point earlier there about how, if you think about the entire tax system, is based on trust. People have to retain their own records, they have to make their own commitments, they have to declare what they owe and then they have to pay it. But they're also required to keep records for six or seven years uh, to go back to to demonstrate that uh, the claims that they submitted were, uh, were valid. And I think that if we can get those sort of fairly light touch processing systems for a whole range of the requirements that are being uh, introduced here, then that will actually make it more reliable and more feasible. So part of it is, is sticking faster issues with staff and training and so on. Uh, to get us through the current period, but uh, the real focus has to be on getting a much better system to operate on the longer term. Well, I, I mean, I have a great deal of trust on the business community. Um, you know, we see them every day operating various systems, the vast systems, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they will overcome um, some of these uh, difficulties at the moment, and, and, and they'll find ways of doing business effectively. Uh, it's very important to, and I, you know, I don't know if we talked about it, but the opportunities of, of selling this place as a place to do business in the two uh, major world markets, uh, the UK and the EU, I think that's really important to keep that goal uh, ahead of us as well. But definitely, there are problems, there are barriers, we need to overcome them, we need to get in solution mode and knock them off one by one. Uh, because uh, I don't think the protocol from a waste we need to make sure that our businesses are, are not negatively affected and every opportunity must be sought in order for us to be competitive in world markets. I mean, Sinead, if I could just add there as well, there's one thing um, we, we've made clear to government as well, is that um, a lot of SMEs are small and fallen through the crack really with regards to information because they'll pick up their phone and they'll call the trader support service for some kind of type of bespoke advice. 
and the TSS doesn't do that. They, they, it's scripted questions and answers you will get. So then they will call, they're told to call a customs agent, but a customs agent, they're busy right now and they don't have time to sit down and give someone almost like a consultancy led advice as well. So they're kind of stuck in no man's land. And a lot of the time they'll be picking up the phone to me, Roger, Aiden and Glenn really. Uh, and we're not always equipped to have the time as well. So we've said, you know, either through, you know, either the Trader Support Service and Best NI or another outlet, that there is some type of additional fund advice for those SMEs who just need that, whether it's trading with GV or with the EU, just to help them along, because it's not there at the moment. Yeah, Absolutely. I think there should be an emergency helpline uh, when we get one-to-one -one advice uh, and it's something that uh, I think the Economy Committee needs to to feed that right back uh, into the department now. Um, it's pressing, it's urgent, uh, and businesses need help. I mean, Shanine, just if I could uh, endorse what my colleagues have said, you know, in the last 24 hours we've got queries from violets to vitamins in terms of very small businesses into very small independent retailers. Very technical nature of the questions. And I and I think if well, if you put it into the context, we're also dealing with a huge amount of information out there in relation to the pandemic as well. Um, and you know, it's how you get that information out in a way that can be utilized by small businesses. But I absolutely think between, you know, the Department of Economy, DEFRA, uh, there needs to be something there that is centrally done, a helpline of experts, uh, because you know, for many of those businesses who operate under very small margins, who are the hardest hit with the pandemic, uh, who's, uh, you know, you know, as I said at the start of this year, many of our members are facing this sort of perfect storm of pandemic and protocol. You know, we need to, we need to ensure that we hold their hand, we get them through this, we answer the questions and try and get their business uh, back on track. Um, because you know, it, it, it is our independent retailers, it is our small businesses that will have the toughest time, both with the protocol and the pandemic. Uh, and just finally, I, I have to say it again to, to the business bodies that are here uh, and others that are not here, um, you're doing a very good job. Once again, you're ahead of uh, the politics that uh, exists here and the politicians. Um, you, need to, you need to keep at it, you need to keep doing it uh, and find solutions for these businesses. And it's really important because it's jobs at the end of the day, it's jobs. Uh, people can platform and cry about things and moan about things, but the real lives behind this uh, and, and people are going through tough times because of COVID and everything else. Um, and we need to just make sure we can crack some of the difficulties that uh, businesses are experiencing now uh, as a result of the Brexit protocol. Thanks, Sinead. Um, can I just pick up on, on the point around the, the advice and stuff to, to businesses? Um, when we had officials in a couple of weeks ago, they were pointing to the Invest NI webinars and that you can now book um, advice slots with those. And we're also pointing to, to Trader Support Service. Uh, but just based on what you said there, Seamus, that's maybe not the most appropriate help. Um, how do you think those supports that are in place currently are working? Um, or do you think that more is needed and more specific help is needed? I think really there's more um, specific help for people that either the Trader Support Service or a customs agent can't help them with. They need just that 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 targeted um, advice and assistance to get them through. And I think there, what, what Sinead said, you know, 
you get people you know in a room a helpline where people can can talk one-to-one -one with them and give them that because it just doesn't exist at the moment i think there's a lot of companies there it could come down to the specific commodities that they move that they're they're coming up against a brick wall and they, they need that help and that can be traders it can be hauliers and whatever but i just think it would be good for for a limited period of time and anyway until people find their feet and we get some certainty with trading conditions Okay, no, that that's useful to know because I know when we had officials, they were, were saying that TSS likes specific questions, but if yeah. the people aren't getting the specific answers when they're asking those questions, then obviously something else needs to be put in place to, to help. So that's I'm sure that the, yeah. the other issue here is that none of us um, realised the complexity of the economy here and the, the business environment. Uh, so, you know, we all do whatever we do um, and there are both members who run their businesses in a particular way and they're experts in the field and how they run their business and suddenly there's been a, a colossal change uh, to the operating environment for, from, for them and there are really very few experts around to advise them on how they do what they do in this new context. So I think we just, uh, we can get up a lot of generic information on websites and so on like this. We can run webinars, we can have a degree of, of uh, of telephone advice supports and so on like this in place, but there will be an awful lot of things where the, the, the challenge is so complicated that you couldn't advise on that basis. And those businesses are really toiling as they try to navigate their way through the system themselves whilst also still running their business. No, th that's useful. Um, we, we will be having an invest NI in with this quite soon. So that's something that we can explore a bit more with them and also intertrade inter as well for, for cross-border um, businesses. But look, that, that's really helpful. Um, I've just got one final question that might be a bit political, but um, you talked about the um, getting some of these solutions will re require political will. Uh, how do you think the, um, the appointment of David Frost will impact on uh, reaching some of those um, agreements around flexibilities that might be required? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, that's, uh, that's quite the question. Thank you very much, uh, Madam Chairwoman. Um, so I, I think we are moving... One of the, one of the saving graces of, of, um, of, of, of Minister Gove is that um, for, for, for all of, 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 of the ideological uh, uh, decisions that, that he makes, there is a, a baseline of pragmatism there. I think that um, we have to remember that, that Lord Frost comes from a, a different position ideologically. Lord Frost comes from uh, a different way of negotiating uh, as well. But there is an inherent difference in how the EU and, and the UK negotiate things anyway. Um, so the EU will, uh, well, the, the UK will go in with a big list and they will ask for the moon and the stars and if they get the sky, they're happy. Whereas the EU, and, and it, it's by basis of um, how they're made up that they have to take 27 uh, countries with them, they agree a principle and then they extrapolate out from that principle based on trust. Um, so very, very different ways. And, and it's one of the inherent frictions in the whole of this process is not just what they're asking for, but how they're asking for it. As far as Lord Frost himself is, is, is concerned, you have to remember he doesn't come into post until the 1st. There's a very, very, very significant meeting happening today, um, which could be uh, deliver an extension of the grace periods or, or, or look at other facilitations. We don't know what those are going to be. And, and, and that's going to be happening the, this afternoon following yesterday's specialised committee meeting. For me, um, the fact that we now have a, an agreement in principle to have a 
uh, at some sort of formal communications with both the EU and the UK. That, that provides me with a lot more solace in this, uh, in the fact that um, we will have a, a direct line to uh, communicate our concerns and, and also our, our, our solutions and the opportunities. Um, so that, that, that's made me be slightly more sanguine about it than I perhaps would have been. Uh, the only other thing to add is that um, the reality of trading and the reality of what Northern Ireland business community and what Northern Ireland households needs has been really well articulated by the Northern Irish business community, the Northern Ireland business community, to the point now where I feel that it cannot be uh, ignored. And I think that the challenge for us as a business community is to continue uh, to uh, keep us in, in centre of attention. If you remember, in, in Jan, uh, January 2020, um, the Northern Ireland Business Brexit Working Group came together to break the narrative that Northern Ireland was sorted under the protocol. We had to come together again uh, this year uh, to break the narrative that either Northern Ireland was completely sorted or Northern Ireland was, was starving, and, and, and that we, we, we have done. I think it, it is it is on us then to continue to, to, to push these messages. So while there will be a change, no doubt, there will be a harder, more robust uh, style of negotiation, the base level and, and the needs of Northern Ireland business have not changed. No, thanks for, for that, Aidan. And you reminded me of something I did want to ask you. It was about that um, engagement with business the, the formalised um, engagement with business. Does the joint consultative working group, is that a, a channel that does that or is it something separate? Um, I, I believe uh, the joint, the, the, well, it, it is going to have to be something separate, quite simply because the, 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 the joint consultative working group has not met with us. Uh, the joint consultative uh, working group seems to be very cloak and dagger where, uh, you know, we know that the joint committee will take their decisions in, uh, in, in, uh, in camera. Uh, and we will not have the ability to go in and, and, and speak to them. However, um, the specialised committee, the specialised committee working group, and the joint committee working group should be available uh, to hear um, arguments and, and concerns from business. That has not happened, and that is one of the reasons why, since last September, we have been asking for a formalised uh, communication. It now remains to be seen how that will be uh, delivered. But for us, uh, the JCWG is not doing what it needs to do. Okay, thanks for that. Um, and Christopher Here. is looking sorry. to come in. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll bring you in after, Christopher. Thanks, Sinead. Can we bring uh, Christopher into the spotlight, please? Christopher, can you hear us? Ah, yes, there we are. Um, I can't see me because the internet in parliament buildings is rubbish, and any time I try to use um, camera and at the same time, the thing now will be collapses on me. So um, I just want to ask, what does it say about the fact that clearly, it's maybe not written 60 days or something like that, there will not have been time for the UK to diverge from any particular EU regulations at this point? But already we're seeing restrictions imposed uh, upon the movement of goods from GB into Northern Ireland. What does that say about the potential for the expansion of this protocol going forward? 
On the divergence part, it's not whether or not you have diverged, it's whether or not you have the potential to diverge. Um, it's it's whether or not you are under the same legal framework. And and this is, you know, I had this in the infrastructure committee a few weeks ago when someone was saying, is a is a, a, a sandwich in Kern Ryan is the same as a sandwich in Belfast? No, because it's not uh, regulated in the same way. It is not does not have that equivalence. It does not have, and even though we are exactly the same at the minute, the potential for divergence, and we've already seen things uh, like CMOs and, and herbicides are being discussed as uh, potential areas for for, for divergence in in in, in the, the short term. It's got nothing to do with um, the. We could have the same standards, but unless they are recognised, unless they have equivalence, um, then then it, it's not it, it is not the same ball game. Now, what we have been trying to do is to show that there is very little risk. Um, using the principle of dead end host and ask for that audit role and certified supply chains. We can show uh, from point of departure that what is leaving is falls under those single market rules and we know exactly where it's going to be sold. So there is that uh, burden of evidence on us, but it also provides uh, that robust um, evidence to the EU. And I'll give you an example of how this that, that works. And, and for example, um, I, I don't think the, the newspapers uh, made enough of this uh, last week when it happened. Last Monday, we had uh, the agreement between the EU and the UK on data equivalence. Now, there were a lot of people... That, that, that was ongoing, that work on that had been ongoing since uh, last October, in September, starting October. And, and it was a real worry. Um, and even for us in Northern Ireland, because you've got to remember the protocol only uh, covers uh, trade. It does not cover uh, services and um, so for, for us, the, the, that is really significant because what happened was the EU said, if you want data equivalent, if you want to be able to move your data into the EU, EU data into you, you will need to provide a security framework and evidence to show that that security framework is in place. The, the UK then did that. Um, and actually, I was quite surprised uh, when that happened on Monday because there were, there were still a lot of questions that member states had. But the commission then rubber-stamped that. And that lays down the principle that if we in the UK provide evidence to answer a EU concern, then the EU will move. And that's what we need to get to as far as a certified article supply chain, just the trader scheme, if you will. Yeah, because, yes, Aidan, because the EU is known for being a very flexible organisation. Um, when you say that we got a derogation on meat products that hadn't happened anywhere else, we got a three-month grace period. I'm not here as a cheerleader for the EU. I'm telling you what business needs, what yeah. business is asked for. Okay, so the burden of evidence is on us. So ultimately, the rules that we live by will be determined by people from outside of this country. Um, imports from the Republic of Ireland were estimated in Northern Ireland. The NISR published the figures for 2018. Imports from the Republic of Ireland. Were estimated to be worth 2.8 billion imports from the rest of the EU. Were estimated to be worth 2.6 billion imports from the rest of the world. Were estimated to be 2.4 billion. Meanwhile, purchases, because they are purchases, they're not imports. Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom. Purchases from Great Britain were estimated to be worth 13.4 billion. And surely that demonstrates that actually placing barriers east-west is going to have a much greater impact in a negative sense, the north-south. Not that I'm advocating for either. 
There, there's no argument against that, but you ha- have to remember what the business community has asked for and has asked for from day one was absolutely no barriers. Anyway, we had argued and we had said that the economy was not built on 20 years of peace. It was built on 40 years of being within that trading relationship. We have a cyclical um, uh, uh, integrated supply chains across these islands. Even if you look at that uh, 2.7, 2.8 billion of uh, Northern Ireland agri-food that our members uh, and, and large retailers buy. Um, we we are uh, uh, 1.9 million people here. We feed over 10 million people in the big. But 60% of that goes through the Republic of Ireland just on None of this can be seen uh, in, in, in singular terms. It has to be looked at as an entirety. What we're trying to do now, as I said earlier, we did not ask for the protocol. In fact, I am on record as saying that um, the uh, Prime Minister had business not in our community. We, we are trying to do now is make facilitations and to argue for those flexibilities from both the EU and the UKG to enable trade to happen. My concern in this is not constitutional. My concern in this is not political. My concern in this is, as is, as it always has been, to continue to provide the people of Northern Ireland with the choice and affordability they need. Well, in, uh, I have to say, in not wanting the protocol in that, you have an ally in me, because unlike several of those who have spoken in this committee meeting, I didn't vote for a motion urging the rigorous implementation of said protocol and said trade barrier between um, up the middle of the IC, between one part of the United Kingdom um, and another. Um, uh, I think I'd probably leave it there because I've made the points that I wanted to make. Thank you. Can we bring Sinead McLaughlin back into the spotlight, please? Can you hear us, Sinead? Yes, can I hear you now? Thank yeah. you. No, I just wanted to come back um, to Aidan. At the very beginning of the presentation, he indicated that as a result of the meeting that they had with um, the joint meeting that they had with, with Gove and Seth Kitch at the beginning of uh, beginning of this week or last week, um, or whenever it was anyway, that he felt that the consultation or the discussion was, um, I suppose, uh, Enlightening, we'll put it that way. Enlightening to to both um, to to both ministers. I wonder. Um, he said that, that they had committed that they would continue on that consultative um, process with the business community. In what form did they actually commit to that? Was it, was there any formalised form? Because the joint working group, uh, the joint committee, obviously doesn't allow for that. But we need another way to get your voice in there so that we can deal with these problems. It, it was enlightening for them in the fact that um, the guys who were around the table, uh, professionals one and all, um, were able to articulate very well the concerns of, of, of uh, their own sectors as well as individual uh, businesses who were used as, as examples. Um, for me, um, the uh, the fact that there was that sort of acknowledgement and, and I, I don't want to go so far as as as, as to be so flippant as to say there was a, a penny dropping moment, but there was there was a greater understanding that was imbued because of that uh, conversation. 
Uh, my uh, uh, understanding is that they will come back to us uh, with an idea of that uh, formalisation. At the end of the day, you know, we are we are bit players. We are merely on the periphery of the politics of this. Um, it is now understood that we have to be listened to, and how they. Uh, engage formally on that will be up to the EU and the UK. Uh, what they have said is that there will be a formalisation of that process, and, and to me, that really means that it needs to be out of the out of the JCWG, which isn't functioning the way it should be. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, it's not that you're better players. I think you're going to be the problem solvers. So it's really important that you get uh, a process or a formalised way of inputting um, information to to those bodies, uh, so that they can overcome some of the the, the, the barriers that you're facing uh, and bring in solution modes to everybody's uh, aspect. Whether you're pro protocol against, I don't know anybody that's pro um, the protocol. Uh, we're, we're just trying to work through it. That's it. Just trying to work through it. Nobody loves it. Um, but Chair, we'll can I pick up on that that point and also your question earlier about Lord Frost and Mr. Stalford's question as well? In some ways, because uh, I felt that uh, Aidan was left to to sort of bat, uh, bat for a long time in a sunny wicket. Um, but I think that they all highlight the point that this group has very studiously not taken any political sides. We deal with whatever we find in front of us. Uh, whether that's the people or the regulations or the legislation. I think that's what's actually given this group the integrity it has throughout the whole process of the last uh, the last number of years, really, because we had the, the Theresa May government first. Uh, we worked with them. We then moved to the Boris Johnson government. As you say, now we've got Lord Frost in there. Whoever is in doing the role by, that some other party has, has put in place to do that role, we will be engaging with them to advocate the, the issues that are affecting our members and our customers and so on like that. And we will aim to try and just gather as many allies as we can in the pursuit of making whatever we have work as well as we possibly can. Thanks for that, Roger. Um, and I think that's probably a, a good um place to, to finish with um, and I thank you all for engaging with us this morning. It has been as always useful and informative and enlightening to you Sinead's word. Um, so we really appreciate it and we appreciate the constructive role that you all have played throughout the uh, last four and a half years and I'm sure we'll be continuing to engage with you going forward um, through the rest of this. So thanks again for your, your briefing this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, um, Peter, is there any actions that we need to agree coming out of that? Chair, there's a few things that I, um, I want to bring back. We have Invest and Intertrade in next week, and there, there's some issues there that are direct questions for Invest. Um, bearing in mind you know, that a response in writing might take longer than next week, it might be a case of uh, it's more efficient to put those in the clerk's memo for that briefing, to highlight them again to members, just so members can bring them direct to invest, that, that might be a more useful conversation if, if members are content. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of other bits and pieces um, that we'll also pick up um, with HMRC TSS when we have them in on the 24th of March uh, around IT systems and so on and data sets. Um, and again, we, we'll bring those forward when we have the memos for those as well. But I'm talking to TSS tomorrow uh, and I'll bring up that issue of the, the new, and I'm going to get the name right, 
um, super reduced data set and also their new computer. Um, I think it also had a name, but I can't remember it now. But we, we'll bring those back as well, Chair, um, just to keep members fully and, and, and more frequently and regularly informed. And Peter, we're expecting that briefing from TSS and HMRC. Yeah, that's the 24th, and we're doing that, Chair, as a, a concurrent with uh, infrastructure and era committees. Um, sorry, Chair, can I just ask, I, I think it's really important that we go back uh, to the, the Permanent Secretary of the Department and ask about that direct support or advice line uh, for the business communities as they try uh, and bed down the new systems uh, in place and, and to get some focus on that. Uh, I think it would be really worthwhile. It's not a long-term um, commitment by the department, but it is something that, that businesses need now. Chair, uh, what we'll do is we, we'll write that back to the department. That'll go into our, our DALO readout as information we need to have. I also think it, it might be worth getting um, clarification from Invest as to how they reorient um, resources on this uh, in terms of a lot of the advice so far is being provided by Invest. This is expanding out considerably. You, 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 know, you heard what the stakeholders had said about very specific questions that need more than a matrix answer. So it's how that will be funded. And I think Invest will probably be the front line up, but we, we use that dual track of bringing it up with Invest next week, but also writing to the department to clarify what their role will be, whether they'll be able to draw down specific funding. Members will recall that there is um, there's quite a few million sitting in the budget for 21-22 around Brexit, and this would seem to be a particularly good use of that kind of money. So we clarify with the department whether that's part of their planning. Thank okay. You. Thank you. Okay, then. Well, if members are content, we'll move on to um, matters arising because we've quite a bit to get through. Um, so, at page 171 of your pack, there's a response from the Minister on support for students. The Minister notes that support has already been provided to FE students. The Minister also highlights that the £500 payment will be made via the institution which the student attends and not the department, and the department is not authorised to make payments to higher education institutions outside of the North. So, unless members have any comments, uh, this is to note. Can I, Chair, can I comment? Yeah, go ahead, Sinead. Um, the, the Minister indicated that she had no uh, legal standing in order to support students um, that are studying in GB uh, through their particular institutions. But the Minister could uh, set up a grant process, as she has done um, for, for many grant processes during the COVID within her own department. And I know that there is a heavy burden within her department, but you know, we, we're talking about solutions here. We need a solution to this. They're, they're in severe financial difficulties, our young students, and we, we need to, the Minister to find a solution, a way, a methodology in which she can support our Northern Irish students that are studying in GB. Um, if, if she feels that uh, she can't really, um, give money to, to institutions uh, within uh, GB, then she needs to do it through her own department and give a body of evidence from students that they are actually studying uh, in GB. Yep, Chair, go ahead. Yeah, Chair, just there's two, two points arise now to that. Firstly, uh, earlier in the thing, um, in the meeting, I raised the issue because it was it was said to us 
uh, on a previous occasion, basically how the department is low on civil servants and struggling to get money out the door as is. And I think that to try and use departmental official time to distribute money to learning institutions throughout the rest of the United Kingdom or indeed south of the border, the administrative complexities of that would just be enormous. Now, I obviously have the, the deepest sympathy and if there's some way beyond that that, that, that that the issue could be addressed. But I do think it's important. We have already been, we've already received advice that officials are, and believe me, I'm, I'm not altogether sympathetic sometimes to the civil service, but we have already received advice in that regard in terms of the delivery of the existing schemes that are in place. And the second issue relating to it, and I haven't, I, I didn't get looking at that letter, but the second issue relating to it, um, I have is the issue around students at colleges that are non, uh, neither Queen's nor Ulster. So for example, um, recently, uh, a year and a half ago, Queen's ended its relationship with Union College in terms of teaching of theology. And there's other uh, theological colleges around the place in Northern Ireland. I'm just wondering, you know, I think the scheme could be delivered as is through those institutions. So I'm just wondering, did we get anything back on that? Christopher, I don't think that point is specifically addressed in, in that response because we wrote on that issue last week that Peter is going to come in here. Chair, I think we're, we're at a point where, because we've written a couple of times on this, the response that we've got doesn't necessarily address that specifically, but what it does um, suggest is that the department is speaking to other institutions that wouldn't have got funding for their students in that first round. So that would suggest talking to the likes of the, the Irish Baptist College, um, Belfast Bible, um, uh, Theological Union, and so on. So hopefully the, the correspondence specifically stating that will come in a response fairly soon. Um, but we are aware that they're talking. That's dead on. Thank you. Thanks, Christopher. John O'Dowd. Uh, Chair. Sorry, John Hello. was just one, and then I'll bring you in after John. Claire, thank you. Oh, sorry, Claire. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, just in relation to Sinead's point, there, there has to be a solution found to that in terms of students studying elsewhere. Because we get the minister has referred on a number of occasions that there are student hardship funds quite obviously available in England, Scotland, Wales and, and the South. Can we get information on how those student hardship funds are working? What sort of grants are available to students and how accessible they are? Uh, just to fill that information gap in relation to those. Uh, and I raised it with the officials who were giving the presentation in relation to the 14 to 19 year old um strategy there is a glaring gap in the scheme announced by the minister those students full, studying full-time who have or are not studying higher education have been left out and i think that's grossly unfair uh, as have part-time students studying have also been left out. So I think that one is probably more difficult to resolve because of the different uh, statuses of, of those students but i think it's something that needs to be looked at but certainly students studying in colleges Further education colleges who are not studying a degree level courses have been left behind, and that, that needs to be resolved as well. But I would like information on the, 
how the hardship funds are working in England, Scotland, Wales, uh, and in the south. I think it will just help us fill that information gap. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, John. Claire. Uh, thank you, Chair, um, and sorry for interrupting you, John. Um, it was suggested to me that it could be potentially facilitated through student finance NI. Now, I'm not entirely sure of the logistics around um, student study in, in, in GB. Um, do, do they get their student finance through the organisation in Northern Ireland? And you know, is, is that an opportunity to do it? Because I suppose the Minister's response, insofar as the legality of around it, would be through facilitating it via the universities. But is there another opportunity to do this? Because most students will access finance, um, you know, through student finance NI. And indeed, those students who are accessing that are, you know, probably can demonstrate the need for it as much as anyone else. And I also agree with John's point in, in uh, respect of FE students not studying um, higher education. Um, you know, I, I think that needs to be addressed as well. I, I'm getting uh, some. Uh, correspondence from constituents in relation to that. I think it's something that we, we need to look at more widely. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Yes, students in Britain and in the South are uh, paid through Student Finance NI as well. Um, and the Minister did indicate, I think, in responses to questions in the Assembly that she was exploring that, but they weren't being overly helpful, I, I don't believe. So um, it's something maybe we'll ask the, the department specifically. Yeah, sure. I think it's hitting against um, data protection and other issues like that. Um, but as you say, the, the department is having those conversations and it might just be a case of supporting the department in doing that, putting, putting that additional pressure on. So if members are content, we can write very specifically on that point, indicating that the committee would support that kind of conversation. Yeah, and also asking for that information in relation to the other um, supports for students. Okay, so moving on. Oh, did somebody else? Gordon. Gordon wanted in as well. Sorry, Gordon. No, it's, it's okay, Chair. Um, I think the points have been covered. Thank you. Thanks, Gordon. So moving on then to um, 6.2, page 174 of your pack, there's a departmental response regarding community energy. Um, we had written to the Minister on the 2nd of February following um, our informal meeting with Drumlin Wind Energy Co-op and others in relation to community energy, asking that they ensure the proposals are considered as part of the overall energy strategy. The Minister has indicated her officials have done this and she's also highlighting that there's no existing legal framework within which to develop community energies, but that that is being looked at as part of the energy strategy. So that, that's something that we will come back to. Uh, and we'll forward that response yes, to the... we've already done that. Done that. Okay. So that's to note. Um, moving on then, page 176, there's a departmental response, including a table outlining the baseline and additional funding provided to Intertrade Ireland uh, for the current financial year and the previous five years, which was something that we had raised with the budget, um, the officials briefing us on the budget, sorry, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and as you can see, it highlights um, Intertrade's dependence on top-up funding over the past number of years. So that's something we can explore with them next week. And Peter, there was a, an interesting thing in the table where it says they had £133 for NI protocol last year. Is there knots missing at the top? Yeah, I think that's that's what it, it should read, thousands rather than, you know, like they... Yeah. 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 Just thought that was not very much. Oh, <laughs> So moving on then to page 177, there's correspondence from the department um, on the, an update on the work of the EAG. Um, the committee at our meeting on the 3rd of February had asked for an update in relation to this. Um, it indicates that the group has met nine times. There's not an awful lot more information there. And it also indicates that a number of people have been added to the group, but they don't seem to have been from the uh, sectors that we had asked. 
for representation to be added to it, so it's something we may want to take up with the Department and the Minister again. Chair, if members are content, we can write asking for greater detail. As you say, the, the response doesn't really go into what the meetings are about. It just talks about the number of meetings. For the, for the committee to apply the sort of level of scrutiny it requires, we need more detail on that. So if members are content, we write to ask for a fuller new list of exactly who's on that, plus more detail about what each of those nine meetings covered. Thank you. So moving on then, page 178, there's a response from the department about the airport recovery plan, which we had um, sent on to the department following our meeting on the 10th of February. And the department has indicated the importance of airports to the local economy and the executive's ongoing support. So additional funding has been granted to the three airports in the past few days to support them during the downturn in business caused by the pandemic. So at this stage, that is to note, unless members have any additional comments. Thank you. Okay. So moving on then, page 180 and 181, there are responses from the department regarding letters that the committee had forwarded um, from Rani. The committee at its meeting on the 9th of December considered a letter from a member of Rani and the correspondence was then shared with the department and we asked for an update on RHA tariffs and the scheme in general. Um, officials have, or sorry, the, the department has indicated that officials will be able to attend the committee in closed session to provide further detail. So if members are agreed, we will seek um, to bring officials to the committee. Peter, why are they wanting it in closed session? The consultation chair is still in progress, therefore any discussion of that and the analysis thereof wouldn't be public yet, so that's why they're looking for a closed session. Okay. Are members content? Yeah. Yeah. So moving on then, page 182, there's a response from the department uh, regarding support for small tourism accommodation. The department um, has confirmed that Small tourism accommodation will be included in any hospitality or accommodation voucher and there is specific reference in it to self-catering accommodation which isn't included in the um, B&B and guest house yeah. scheme um, and I know that some members have been contacted in relation to that so is that something we can share? Yeah, we, we can share that with the bodies that we've been corresponded with, Chair. Okay. Chair, can I just come in on that please? Yes, go ahead, Gordon. Yeah, just on that, I will welcome that. I think the important thing here is that uh, these operators now can apply under the local restriction support scheme as a result of the requirement to close in October 2020. That's new. Uh, the action scheme, the, the small tourism one, as I understand, has closed, uh, but they can now apply. And I have certainly sent that information out to some businesses uh, in, in the tourism sector. Uh, and told them to get on with it and to apply through that scheme, which I think it's important if we could highlight that and, and make people aware that, that they can now do that. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gordon. Um, so moving on then to 100, page 183, there's a response from the department about what it's doing in relation to fraudulent claims for the COVID support schemes. Um, at our meeting on the 3rd of February, the committee received an oral briefing from the department on um, the financial support schemes and ask for details from the department on the nature of the disclaimers which the department includes in approving applications for the COVID support schemes to cover any fraudulent claims and potential need to claw back funds. So each scheme highlights that participants' claims form part of a legal contract that would be breached if any of the claimants were deliberately misleading. So this would form the basis of fraud. So that's just useful to know um, as to note unless members have any particular comments. Okay. 
Chair, I think we could just welcome that. Um, it obviously is very detailed and so on. Just on the large tourism scheme, I've had some feedback this week that it looks like it's going to be the end of March before payments are made. Now that's almost a year that those large hotel operators and business operators have not had any payment. So perhaps we could highlight that to the department and try and put some urgency on on that issue and, and trying to get it addressed and that the payment is made as soon as possible. Yeah. Thank Gordon, I have been contacted myself about the, the large tourism scheme and has confirmed from the department that people will be contacted at the end of February and payments should be made in March, but we can reflect that back. I think it's, Chair, it's just worth getting an update on the specifics of that. I know the, the way that scheme worked was slightly different from others where it was a proactive contact. Uh, contact by the department, but I think it's important just to be able to reassure those expecting payment that that's how the process is going to work. Yep. Okay. Right, thank you. Thanks, Gordon. Moving on then, page 188, there's a letter from Michael Gove MP regarding the implementation of the protocol. Um, we had invited Mr Gove to brief members, and he makes no reference in his response to coming to do that. So um, it's to note at this stage, unless members have any comments they wish to make. Okay. Peter, we may want to follow up on that again. Well, I think, Chair, what, what I would be suggesting is that uh, it would be useful to write back thanking him for the response um, indicating that the committee would, yes, absolutely still seek updates, but that they would also continue to request that he comes to brief the committee if members are content. Yep. Yeah. Nodding heads there, yep. Okay, so moving on, page 189, there's a letter from Ulster University regarding admissions criteria for the 2021-22 academic year. As referenced by other respondees, the higher education institutes, uh, the FE colleges and other relevant stakeholders are working together to develop a response um, framework. This will be shared with the department for approval in due course and with the committee subsequent to that. So, Peter, it might be useful to know what the department's engagement is with the stakeholder group. Chair, from what I've understood, um, the, the discussion is with the stakeholders first. The department is aware of them doing that. They're going to come back with a plan to the department that they'll all engage on um, and I think that's where the process is at now but what we'll do is we put out uh, a request to the involved stakeholders just to ask what their view of, of the um, you know the point of where this stands is. Okay thank you. Moving on then to page 191 there's a letter from UCU to the minister regarding lecturer pay at further education colleges the letter formally registers a trade dispute and has been copied to the committee for information. Um, and it's to note at, at this stage as it wouldn't be appropriate for the committee to involve itself in issues around lecturers' pay and terms and conditions, although we would encourage them to try to resolve those issues. Chair, we, we had correspondence on this before and had written yeah. to both sides to urge that they talk. Um, now that a live dispute um, is, is in progress. They have declared a trade dispute. The committee needs to stand back from that. But again, the, the um, committee's advocacy for discussion is still there. Okay, thank you. Moving on then to page uh, three of table papers, there is a departmental response regarding student hardship fund, um, which indicates departmental officials are engaging with the higher education institutions to consider the criteria for the hardship um, that is being applied. And obviously this is an issue that we have been raising for, for quite some time. So it would be useful to hear the outcome of that and get some feedback. But as to note at this point. 
Um, then at page five of table papers, there's a response from Ulster University in relation to the relocation of the health science courses. Um, that it indicates that UU's decision reflects the benefits and opportunities presented by the co-location of the health, or sorry, of the School of Medicine Paramedic Practice and the award-winning School of Nursing, all of which are based at the McGee campus. And furthermore, the BC indicates that Belfast is the most appropriate location for postgraduate provision, supporting the existing health sciences workforce to access continued professional development alongside current postgraduate nursing provision. The committee will have an informal meeting with the VC um, of Ulster University on the 25th of March, and we will also likely have a, a formal uh, committee briefing following that. So it's to note at this stage, unless there's any particular comments. Okay. Um, so then moving on to, pay, or to item number seven, which is the skills strategy and economic output micro inquiry special report. There's a draft report at page 195 of your pack. Um, the first draft of the report was reviewed at the committee on the 17th of February, and members had suggested a small number of minor amendments. These amendments have now been made and are highlighted in yellow in the document. Um, and obviously, the motion has been submitted to the business office, so it's likely to be scheduled. Um, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're fairly hopeful that we'll see it in the next couple of weeks. They're, they're applying the usual need for additional semicolons and so on, so we will get that back in due course. But they, they have accepted the motion, so really now it's a case of just getting the report agreed so that we can start going through um, the, the publishing system um, so that we'll be able to get it out to members, all, all members, um, prior to the debate. So if members are content. Are members content? Yep. Yes. Yep. Thank you. Okay, so moving on then to item number eight, which is SR 2020 331, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 Coronavirus Amendment of Relevant Period for Meetings of Registered Societies and Credit Unions Number 2 Regulations, Northern Ireland 2020. The SR is at page 220 of your pack. These regulations amend the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 to extend the temporary arrangements for holding certain meetings of credit unions and cooperative and community benefit societies. The committee approved the SR on the, uh, the SL, I think. It was the SR. This is, um, we, we received it in draft. This is just confirmation. We'd already agreed the draft. This is just confirmation of what the, the final um, SR looks like. It's exactly the same. Okay. Are our members content to note? Thank you. Okay, so moving on then, there's a departmental written briefing. Um, it's an update on the apprenticeship recovery. At page 224 of your pack, there is the written briefing. Um, the department has developed an apprenticeship recovery package that will channel financial support to local businesses to help our apprenticeship system respond to the impact of COVID-19. Um, on the 27th of August, the Minister announced that apprenticeships were being allocated £17.2 million in 2020-21 from the Executive, complementing £4 million allocated from DFE central funds to support the recovery package. Such additional stimulus funding complements the existing in-year apprenticeship programmes training support funding of approximately £26 million. The apprenticeship return, retain and result scheme was designed to ensure that there was no break in support availability for local employers with the eligibility beginning on the 1st of November 2020, the day after the, the, the coronavirus job retention scheme was scheduled to end, and obviously, as we know, it did not. 
Um, as of the 29th of January, 48 employers have successfully applied to the scheme, supporting 111 apprenticeships with £55,220 paid out. The apprenticeship recovery incentives will be promoted again as part of a three-week week media campaign from the 8th to the 28th of February. And obviously, we know from talking to officials that, that those have been impacted by the restrictions that were reimposed before Christmas. So it will be important that that um, re-promoting that takes place. So are members content to note at this stage and we will uh, keep in touch with the department around this? Chair, um, members will recall when we saw the 21-22 budget that the, the department has effectively budgeted for this to continue. I think they, there's an awareness on their part that they'll be having to provide this kind of support well into the new financial year. Yep. Okay. Okay, so moving on then, there's a departmental written briefing um, on the ESF succession project. On page 233 of your packs, there is the written briefing. Um, the UK Shared Prosperity Fund was identified by the British government as the replacement for structural funds. However, the details of the scheme continues to be limited and the timescales are, are, are a real concern, as the committee is aware of from its engagement with various organisations. The announcements to date do not give any assurance, reassurance that the Shared Prosperity Fund will support the type or scale of succession provision that is needed. However, the Department is continuing to engage with their counterparts in the relevant, relevant sorry, UK departments on these issues in parallel to developing our own succession projects. So this is to note at this stage, um, unless there are specific points that the Committee want to make. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Moving on then to um, item number 11, the programme for government, the draft outcomes framework consultation. There is a clerk's memo at page 238 of your packs and the consultation paper at page 240. The executive released its draft programme for government consultation, which ends on the 22nd of March. This session uh, provides an opportunity to consider the DFE responsibilities in the draft PFG. The current draft EFG has nine outcomes which members are likely aware of around children and young people having the best start in life, that we live and work sustainably, protecting the environment. We have an equal and inclusive society where everyone is valued and treated with respect. We all enjoy long, healthy, active lives. Everyone can reach their potential. Our economy is globally competitive, regionally balanced and carbon neutral. Everyone feels safe. Um, we have a caring society that supports people throughout their lives and people want to live, work and visit here. So the department is referenced in each outcome with the exception of outcome 7. The department's role in outcome 6 and 9 is particularly referenced. So are members content that we would receive a briefing on the consultation at an appropriate point? Thank you. Okay. So moving on then to um, number 12, the departmental consultation, the future of the NI non-domestic renewable heat incentive scheme. Um, at page 274 is the consultation document. The consultation was launched on the 11th of February and will run for eight weeks and close on the 9th of April. The consultation document is enclosed and also is available on the department's website. And obviously we have asked for the briefing from the department. So are members content to note? Thank you. Um, so then at uh, item number 13 is the EU exit structures. 
um, a member from the EU Affairs Manager um, on Intergovernmental Relations and EU Exit is at page 347. There's a schematic of the IGR and EU Exit at page 348. The terms of reference of the Executive Committee on EU Exit Matters at page 349. And a paper on intergovernment relations and EU Exit at page 357. So this is to note unless members have any specific points. Chair, the one thing I would say is the, the schematic on page 348 of members' packs relates to a lot of what was discussed this morning and is, is really very, very useful. It shows where the executive has a role in communication with the Joint Consultative Working Group, and, and it would therefore be, followed, following the discussions this morning, for the executive to be getting stakeholders' views, um, such as the committee heard, and putting those forward. Um, I think the, the involvement of the executive is not necessarily um, automatic. It may well be a case if it is invited to be there or is asked for an opinion. It uh, might be useful to write and find out specifics on that. Yeah. Okay. Are members content? Yep. Thank okay. you. So moving on then to uh, correspond. Sorry, Chair, can I ask a question just about that? Um, I think it was Glenn that brought up about uh, the EU office uh, and the necessity to have the EU office based in the city, um, in Belfast or wherever, uh, and even at the ports. Or, um, can we bring that to the to to um, the minister? Because I think that's really for us to overcome some of the difficulties that we may be experiencing. If there's a direct point of contact uh, within the EU. Sure. Now go ahead, Christopher. Um, I, I disagree. Um, the when this idea was floated, um, sort of six eight months ago, I actually during the meeting I looked up. The, uh, some of the press coverage around this issue and it was very clear that the intention then, this was not to be like a consulate or uh, an equivalent um, like the executive office in Brussels. The intention of those who were advocating for this was that this would effectively be the administrative headquarters of the EU to oversee the rigorous implementation of the protocol. And that was the view six months ago. Now if the view, if people have changed their view and are for ameliorating the impact of the protocol, that's fine. And they can make the argument for the EU to, to set up like a consulate if they wish. But when this was raised um, some time ago, it was clear that this was to be um, basically like a, a headquarters for their uh, efforts to oversee the vigorous and rigorous uh, enforcement of this protocol. And on that basis, I'm absolutely opposed to that. Uh, we're no longer in their club. Uh, it's bad enough that we have to abide by some of their rules, but we're not going to have uh, EU civil servants based in the city of Belfast telling us what to do. Chair, um, just on, on the back of what Mr Stolford has said, um, I think that the TEO committee may have had briefing already. If members are content, um, if, if I write to the clerk, just to pin down, because I know they had junior ministers in, I just can't completely recall what was discussed, but if we write to them in the first instance as the, the committee with the remit um, to ask them what information they already have, 
because um, I'm pretty sure it was, I think, discussed. I would agree with that, Peter, because I mean, that is, that's Christopher's interpretation of what the office was meant to be for. That's certainly not my understanding of what it was meant to be for. So I think uh, it's very important to write and get clarification around that. But I certainly heard it loud and clear that it would be helpful for businesses here in Northern Ireland to have uh, a contact base uh, to one of our, our, our biggest markets. Uh, and, and, and we're abiding by the single market rules, so why shouldn't we have an office based here uh, in Northern Ireland to help and support our business community? Okay, Chair, uh, we follow up. John O'Dowd. Yeah, I think we need to have more information on what we're in favour of our partnership before we pitch our tents and partner uh, there's clearly outlined, the proposal to me is outlined, uh, I can't remember who the proposal came from, or, or suggestion came from in the presentation. We have the Chinese consulate, we have the American consulate, with a number of other consulates uh, in and around the city of Belfast, and it would make sense to have an EU fixture or consulate uh, in the city of Belfast. Uh, so I'd like to hear more information from the TEO committee and look at and try and find a, a solution which benefits the people here rather than opposing something we don't have the full details of. Well, mercifully, I'm on the TEO committee and I shall oppose it there as well. Thanks. I'm, I'm sure you won't oppose the information coming to our committee. But... Okay, thanks. We will we'll do that. We'll contact the TEO committee. Okay, so we'll move on then to correspondence at page 371 of your pack. There is a memo from the clerk uh, to the, the Committee for Justice to the Economy Committee clerk regarding the protection from stocking bill, which is currently at committee stage. The Justice Committee is currently seeking written evidence on the bill and is inviting any comments by the 16th of April. It was to note unless members have any comments. Okay, so moving on, page 372, there's correspondence from the clerk to the Committee for ERA to the clerk to the Committee for Economy regarding correspondence they receive from an individual who is a participant in the RHI scheme. So that is to note also. Uh, moving on then to page 374, there is correspondence from the clerk to the Committee for the Executive Office to the clerk for the Economy Committee regarding a student who has broadband connection difficulties at home which have had a serious impact on her ability and other members of her family to study at home. The committee has already dealt with this correspondence um, which we received from any UU student. So um, are members content that the clerk respond um, indicating the committee has already dealt with this? Okay. Moving on, page 376, there's correspondence from the Department for the Economy to an individual who is an exams invigilator. As exams have been cancelled, the individual had not been able to earn and has also not been able to access any of the financial schemes. We have written to the Minister several times about individuals and small businesses who have not been eligible uh, to, for various financial schemes. So are members content that we would highlight this sector to the Department also? Thank you. At page 378, there is correspondence from RCA RICS to the Communities Minister highlighting the benefits of retrofitting homes with sustainable energy solutions while also stimulating the economy through the development of people with new skills. This is an issue obviously the committee um, was noted in its energy strategy and macroeconomic outlet special report uh, as part of the sustainability and green jobs agendas. It's a, an interesting document um, which backs up some of the stuff that we've already heard. Are members content to note? 
Can I speak on that just for a second as well? Um, yeah, it is an interesting document and, and we talk an awful lot about energy uh, and one of the big issues that we actually have is that we uh, are not energy efficient. And um, I think that there, you know, we need to really concentrate uh, on house building, but also retrofitting uh, existing properties in order to protect and, and help those that are living in field poverty. So uh, a really useful document. Okay. Thanks, Sinead. Um, okay, then moving on to 14.6, page 380, there's correspondence from a small business involved in the wedding sector. The business has offered to brief the committee, along with others involved in the wedding sector, about the issues they faced during the pandemic, particularly in relation to accessing financial assistance. So if members are content, we will arrange an informal briefing. Thank you. On okay, page 382, there's correspondence from a property technology business that would like to employ staff here through the newly proposed Job Start Scheme. The Communities Minister is responsible for this scheme, and we previous written response, or responses to written questions even from the Minister have indicated there have been delays around the financial commitments to start the scheme. So would members be content to forward the correspondence to both the Communities Minister and the Economy Minister asking for an update? And obviously we've already dealt with this earlier in... Um, today's meeting. Are members content? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Page 384, then, there is the 25th report of the examiner of statutory rules. Is to note, unless members any comments. And then page 393 is the 26th report. So again, it's to note. Um, page 8 of table papers, there's correspondence from NUSUSI highlighting the news that the Scottish Government has created a task force to consider student hardship. So are members content that we would write to the relevant Scottish Government Minister to seek details on the task force and its work? Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. Um, at page 9 of table papers, there is a news release from ABI highlighting that insurers expect to pay up to £2.5 in UK insurance claims. The committee obviously was briefed by ABI a number of months ago and we have been engaging with stakeholders regarding the um, emerging situation in relation to the business interruption insurance and the outcome of the the, um, the court action on that. So it's to note, and Peter, I had an, an issue raised with me about insurance. It's actually in relation to car insurance, mm -hmm. um, post-Brexit cross-border um, premiums being greatly inflated. So it may be something that we could seek some information on. Yeah, sure. We, we can uh, write about that. Um, that's, that's an interesting one, and it would be useful if there's correspondence, if members can forward that, just so we can pick out particular detail too. But we'll flag up to the department and seek an update on that. Okay, thank you. Um, then page 12 of table papers, the annual accounts and reports of SERC and NWRC, just to highlight that the CNAG has indicated that he has, is content with the reports and has no comment to make, so are members content to note? Okay, so moving on then to item number 15, which is any other business, and we've had none um, indicated. And then item number 16 is the date, time and place of the next meeting. Um, we have an informal meeting scheduled tomorrow morning at 11am with Speed Up Britain, who campaign for better mobile connectivity and the rollout of 5G. So if members are available for that meeting. And then our next committee meeting is next Wednesday morning in room 30 at 10am. So are members uh, content to adjourn? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, members. Thank you.